Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul Part 13 Chapter 28 Two Directions on How to Restore Communion with God Quicken Your Desires After God and Bewail the Cause of Your Desertion Now I come to the third thing propounded in the way of cure Directions to Further Your Endeavors of Recovering Your Loss First, Quicken Your Desires After God for desires will yield a twofold advantage. Number one, the promise is full to such as desire much. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, verse 6. It is not every slight and cold wish that entitles one to this promise. Every weak appetite and desire of meat and drink is not hungering and thirsting. When you are impatient and long much after him, then you shall be filled. The word is borrowed from feeding or foddering of cattle, and imports this, that though you are now put to graze upon the dry and barren mountains, yet if you long for more, the faithful shepherd of Israel that loads Joseph like a flock will put you into green pastures, to feed and fill you by the waters of rest. God's hand is shut because your hearts are shut. Has he not said, Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it? Psalm 81 verse 10. The first grace is given without precedent desires. God is found by them that seek him not. But this grace that we speak of is given to them that seek it. Listen to this again. God is found by them that seek him not. But this grace that we speak of is given to them that seek it. Number two, when desires are high, they beget endeavors like themselves, strong and vigorous. The more you labor, the more you will get. Therefore, blow up your desires by the bellows of meditation. Sit down and consider what it is to enjoy God and what it is to lack his presence. These thoughts, if they abide, will fire you out of the bed of sloth in which you lie sleeping. Second, bewail yourselves and your state before God. Sit down and mourn. Mourn, I say, for your loss and for the cause. Number one, be well, your loss. Take up a lamentation and say, Woe is me, for my God, my life is departed from me, and how I am changed. I was as the tree planted by the river's side, spreading and flourishing, and my fruits were fair and full. But alas, now I have become as a tree in the desert, withering and shaking both fruits and leaves. My sweet spring has turned into a sad autumn. My first days were my best days, and the last days are my worst days. I was filled with light and life, but now my sight is dimmed. My strength is wasted. There was a time when faith had life in me, and I had life by it. But now what a woeful overspreading of dark clouds and incredulity. My pleasant days of life and luster have fled away from me, and the bonds of death have taken hold of me. My soul was the temple and throne of Christ, and I received daily oracles from his mouth. But now I am the habitation and region of vanity, 
and darkness. What sweetness did I find in flights aloft when it was my greatest solace to be with God? But now I, that was as a star in heaven, have fallen into the depths of vanity, and have become to myself as gall and wormwood. My soul was an enclosed garden, and the chiefest of ten thousand, and did walk in the shadow of the trees, and was delighted in their fruits. But now the fence is down, my love is gone, the beasts break in, and Sharon has become a desert. There was a time when the thoughts of sin did pierce me, and the remembrance of God lifted me up to the third heaven. But now my heart has lost its fence, and the things that I know do not have their former strength. My tears, which were as pleasant waters to my taste, and which I could pour out before God, my tears are gone, and that melting of heart which was my joy has vanished. My heart is frozen. The spring is stopped. The heart of flesh has become a heart of stone. That blessed society of graces, those holy desires, and those heavenly dispositions, which did meet in a happy conjunction in my soul, seem now scattered, and to lie in chains, while the troops of hell do hold in all possession. My soul that walked with a heavenly guard of divine graces, lies now like Daniel in the den among devouring lions. Oh, how I was accustomed to meet God, and what communion I once had with him. But now he hides himself and will not come to me. I pray, and he does not hear me. I hearken after him, but he speaks not. I call, but he answers not. Oh, those golden days, will they never more return? I was in the habit of feasting in my father's house. The fatted calf was killed, and the ring and best garments were put upon me. But now I am forsaken and not owned. I go hungry and naked and feed among the hogs. And in this I am more miserable than them, because I was a son. It is misery to have been happy. Lord, if I had never known you, I could have lived without you. But this is my misery, not so much that I am without you, as that I have lost you. Many are well without you because they never enjoyed you. The children of beggars and slaves do not count it their misery that they are not princes, but it is a bitter evil when the children of princes become beggars. Thus then, betake thyself to these sad thoughts. Make your closet a house of mourning. Breathe out your sighs, send forth your groans, pour out your tears, tear your heart, and cast up your weeping eyes to your former friend, that's friend with a capital F, with the sad complaints of a bleeding soul. Perhaps you may prevail upon him. Though he has forsaken you, yet he has not forgotten you. He has not forgotten himself and all the kindness that he has shown you. He cannot hold from coming when you cannot hold from calling. The melting of your heart causes the yearning of his bowels. Can the mother forbear when her child cries? God will not deny mercy to those who mourn. Blessed are the mourners, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5, verse 4. 
God will not deny mercy, especially in two cases, when the sorrow of his people is great and genuine. Letter A. His compassions are especially drawn out when the sorrows of his people are great. When the woman came with a troubled spirit, pouring out her tears upon the feet of Christ and wiping them with the hair of her head, then Christ poured out comfort upon her and sent her away with the pardon of all her sins. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50. And when Zion sat in the dust, melting herself in heaviness and crying, My God hath forsaken me, my God hath forgotten me. Isaiah 49, verse 14. When she was tossed and afflicted and not comforted, then God came in and opened a well in the desert. And in the depths of her trouble, he no longer concerned himself, but broke out in a most gracious protection of his love. Can a woman forsake her sucking child, that she should not have compassion on the fruit of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget these. Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16. The words are strong expression of his dear and faithful affection. The mother's affections are dear and tender, and so are mine. The mother loves her child because it is the fruit of her womb. I also have begotten you, and you are my child. The mother is most tender to the sucking child, which cannot help itself. If it cries, she cannot hold back. You also are as such before me. The mother may possibly forget, but I will not. You are always in my eye, and if I cannot forget myself, I cannot forget you, for you are engraved and imprinted upon my hand. Thus God has comforted his people, and will have mercy upon the afflicted, Isaiah 49, verse 13. He comforts those that are cast down, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. When the heart mourns much, God will show himself for, bracketed number one, the purpose of sorrows is not to afflict, but to profit, not merely to cast down, but also to raise up. When God casts sorrows upon the wicked, his end is to afflict and to punish and their sorrows do attain their end when they lie like loads oppressing their spirits. But that which is a curse to them is a cure to the godly. Their mourning is but sowing in tears to reap up joy. Psalm 126, verse 5. Sorrow in the spirits of such is like the rain upon the grass. It puts the soul into a flourish. It makes it yielding and tractable. When wax is softened, it will easily receive an impression, and metals dissolved are apt to be drawn out and molded as you would have had them. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 3. The sad looks of others have a natural force to work seriousness and consideration in us, much more when our own hearts are full. Ahab himself would do much in a pensive fit, and Manasseh's monstrous spirit was tamed by sorrow. God brought upon him the Assyrian, and he bound him with fetters and carried him to Babylon, 
And when he was in affection, he besought the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers, and prayed unto him. Second Chronicles 33, verses 11 through 12. You see the sweet fruit of this bitter root. And what was the outcome? God was entreated of him, and heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. That's verse 13. Bracketed number two. The greater sorrow, the fitter the object of mercy. Mercy is for the miserable, and none are more miserable than those who mourn the loss of communion with God. This wound is the deepest and most bleeding of all wounds. The soul in such a case has no help in all the world. All things yield not more than a drop of water upon dives his tongue. Luke 16, verses 24 through 25. Look now upon the nature of God, and you shall see him full of mercy. Look upon the ways of God, and these too are full of mercy. Therefore, if you clothe yourselves with the garments of heaviness, and come before God with a spirit which is much lamenting after him, he will appear to you. He will revive the spirit of the humble. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Bracket number three. Much sorrow will put upon strong pursuits after God. It will make you full and strong in prayers, and the power of prayer is great with God. Sorrow makes the soul run to Christ, and so improves all the hope, faith, and interest that it has in him. And they that seek the Father and the Son shall find him. Bracket number four. God will be welcome when the soul is bitten with his absence. God leaves his people because they slight him. But when they have learned to prize him, now he will come. No place fits him but the highest, and God is lifted up when the heart pines after him in the presence of all the things which were formerly delightful and precious. Love is seen in sorrow. We grieve much in the loss of that which we love much. Letter B. Sorrow prevails with God when it is genuine. Bracketed number one. When you sorrow not only for the loss, but for the cause. When you can mourn not only that you are deserted, but because you have sinned. When you can grieve much that you have procured this evil. Bracketed number two. When your sorrow is not only because of the misery of such a state, but also for the sinfulness of it. There are many fears and great anxieties in the soul that sees itself left by God. But a holy heart will not only grieve because it has fallen into such misery, but also, and especially, because sin has regained its strength and the life and luster of holiness is weakened. Grace has a great beauty in the eye of him that has it, and sin carries it in the greatest deformity and misery unto him. Such a one minds not so much his ease as his cure. His heart is carried in such strong desires after God that he overlooks his suffering. Weeping is no burden, and so that he might recover his loss, though it comes through a storm of fears, cares, and griefs, he would count himself happy. 
Another man, who has no greater thing to fear or desire than hell and heaven, dwells upon his fears when he is afraid and is held in them. If he could be delivered from his fears, he would be at rest. But a godly man, though he feels his troubles, yet he would not count his case happier if those storms were down, but will mourn until he is restored to his former life in God. David was not satisfied until a new heart was created in him and a right spirit renewed. Psalm 51, verses 10 through 11. Bracket number three. When he sorrows, not only for the loss of the comfort and sweetness in a holy conversation with God, but for the loss of God himself. A child has much comfort and relief from his father, but when his father is gone, he not only laments the loss of comfort, but also the loss of his father, even as the widow is more sorrowful for the loss of her husband than the good she received by him. When a man sees what he has lost, he cannot but mourn to think what days he had when he lived under the wing of his gracious father. Yet all the comforts that he had or hoped for do not lie so heavy as the loss of God himself, for to a godly man all comforts and graces and all the good that he receives serves to lead his heart to God and fixes it upon him. God has the ends in mind here. He sends them out as Joseph sends chariots to bring his father and brethren to him. All these things are but conveyances and servants employed between God and his people to invite and draw their hearts to himself. And the saints do not rest in these. They do not settle for the handmaids. The fruits of God's love are sweet because they are sweet. Therefore, God is precious. Christ is precious to them that believe. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. Bracket number 4. When your sorrow is not only for the evil of your loss, but also as it betokens displeasure in God. A true friend is grieved when his friend leaves him and casts him off, not only for his own great loss, but also for his friend's anger. He can well be without his friend as without his love and as loath that his friend should be displeased as himself damaged. Bracket number five. When your sorrow is that, you have less strength to serve him. Grace has a great recompense in itself, but can you grieve the fact that by bringing yourselves into this state of deadness, you have lived with little honor to your God and are not now able to do much for him? This is genuine sorrow. Bracket number six. When you can gladly submit to all conditions of reconciliation and restoration. Though God requires much, or imposes much, yet you count all as nothing in comparison of God. Can you say, Lord command me, chide, rebuke, and smite, do what you will, though it is through a desert or through a sea of straits and troubles, yet I am content to go, so that I may arrive at last, at my desired end, if I may have your good presence, it shall be enough. If you will come to me, and if I may come to you, and every way shall be sweet. Though I may go through thorns and briars to the raking of my flesh and the effusion of my blood, yet this shall be nothing to me if I may enjoy my God, who is all in all to me. When your sorrow is genuine, then you will find God. Indeed, he has found much, whose frozen heart begins to thaw, and to dissolve itself in showers of tears for the return of God into, unto his deserted soul. 
The Lord has looked upon you if, with Peter, you weep bitterly. Number two, bewail the cause. This is part of that cure which the great physician of souls prescribed to Ephesus, languishing, languishing in a like disease. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent. Revelation 2, verses 4 through 5. Question. Is the subtraction of the quickening influence of the Spirit always for sin? Answer number one. Sometimes it is not, because his people have sinned, but for the pursuit of higher ends. Peter was left to be strangely foiled with fears of suffering, falling exceedingly beneath his former spirit and resolution, yet not for any particular sin of his, but, as it is likely, that he might see how unable he was in and of himself, and thus that all the glory of his future heroic acts and sufferings might come, not to himself, but unto Christ. Paul was buffeted that he might not be exalted. God let loose Satan, not to punish, but to prevent his sin, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. So the case stood with the blind man, John 9, verse 3. Answer number two. There is also cause in us, though God makes it not a cause to himself and to his action. Therefore, your responsibility is to consider your ways. Answer number three. God usually does it for sin, and if you search the scriptures, they testify that sin is the usual spring of this evil. Sin separated between us, Isaiah 59, verse 2. He has threatened that if we forsake him, he will forsake us, 2 Chronicles 15, verse 2. Question, how may a man find out what sin is the cause? Answer, sometimes the cause is visible and a man can scarcely look past it. This is the case when, upon some particular gross failing, a damp has fallen upon him. In such a case, God points at the sin and reveals the cause of his displeasure by this sudden punishment inflicted upon him. Scripture affords many instances of discovering the sin by the time of the punishment. It may be that there has been an eminent neglect of those means by which life was upheld, by gross carelessness and omission, or palpable remissness in duties, vanity of mind, sinful affection, and conniving at other evils, have so broken in that a man may plainly see the time when his fall began, and when his sun began to set. Sometimes, however, the cause is not apparent, though it may be discovered upon consideration. For help in this, I will propound four rules. Rule number one. Pursue your loss and sad condition to the birth of it. Consider how long this night of darkness has been upon you. Look back to the days in which you were happy living in communion with God. If a man has lost something, he thinks back to himself of when he had it and where he had it, and so pursues his loss to the very time and place as much as he is able. It may be that when you come to this, you will have much light to find out how you lost your treasure. God does not go away upon small offenses. By searching, you will find the gap that led in these floods. Rule number two. Consider what things have been most pressed by God, from time to time, upon you. For though the whole law and all righteousness are enjoined to all, yet there are some things more especially pressed. 
Joshua was much pressed to courage, so much so, so much so that it is as if it had been his only task. Be strong and of good courage. Only be thou strong and very courageous, and so forth. Joshua 1, verses 6 through 7 and 9. The Israelites were mightily called on to take heed of forgiving God and what he had done when they would come to possess the land of promise. Only take heed to thyself and keep thy soul diligently, lest thou forget, and so forth. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, 8, verses 2, 5, 10 through 11, 14, and 18. And after their return from Babylon, some things especially were again urged, as not to mix themselves with the heathen, which things Ezra and Nehemiah labored much in, and to build the temple, which the prophet Haggai again and again enforced. In this way, every Christian, according to his station, temper, measure of gifts and graces, relation, age, and course, is put upon some things in a special manner. Hear what the Spirit says. It may be that his voice has called upon you for more humiliation, meditation, thankfulness, prayer, reading, zeal, or mortification of particular lusts. Now, if you have been deaf to these calls, it is likely that here grew the difference between God and you. For it is a great disobedience when a man sins against such strong and continued calls. A friend takes it ill when he is often denied, and long put off in a thing much desired and strongly requested. Rule number three. Listen to conscience, for that is God's deputy, and it will tell you what it is that God takes ill of at your hands. Observe at what door conscience lays this sad birth, this miserable plight of soul which you are in, for that is likely to be the Father. As God witnesses with our spirits, so usually he chides with them, or at least he never chides without them. But when he will rebuke, he sets conscience to it. Hear then its errands, and receive its charge. It may be that it will say that this is caused by your pride, your slightness in duties, your neglect of God and Christ, or your harbored lusts. I do not deny that conscience may err, and often does, in charging that is sin which is no sin, or making sin greater than it is, or accusing man of that which he is not guilty of, or judging and condemning when the sin is pardoned. Therefore, I add, rule number four, pray that the Lord will show you wherein you have offended. It was Elihu's counsel to Job in his sad case. Surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement. I will not offend any more that which I see not. Teach thou me. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Job 34, verses 31 and 32. And when you are convinced of the evil of your ways, then look upon them and mourn over them. What a thing this is! Or what a thing is this, that I should provoke him to leave me, in whose presence I have had such light, such life, such strength, such liberty, such peace, such victories, such treasures, and such joys. Hear, O ye heavens, for I have committed two great evils. 
I have forsaken the fountain of living waters and have hewn for myself cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. O wretch that I am, that precious that, or that the precious communion which I had with my God was of no more esteem with me, that those sweet streams of comfort from the well of life which I had but now lack, those quickening beams from the sun of righteousness, those refreshing and ravishing sights and tastes of Jesus Christ, those pleasant banquets which I had in the ordinances and duties, those blessed embraces of the everlasting arms of the Lord my God, these were of so low an account with me that I should lose them by my folly. I'll just add in there, take note for those who uh, who are reading this who think that, you know, that the law was for Jews and that uh, grace is for Christians. This pretty much says right here, or shows here, that these Puritans actually did take pleasure in ordinances and duties, which is another term for the law. Anyway, I'll continue. I have been careful to keep my name, my state, my health, yea, even my vanities, but I have not been careful to keep my God or the life and comfort of the spirit which Christ purchased with his blood. I, like the profane Esau, have sold these for nothing. Woe is me that the Spirit of Jesus Christ should come in mercy to make his abode with me, and yet has no better entertainment. I set the doors open that he might depart by the entertaining of lusts and vanities. I have made him weary of his dwelling, and he that came in love has gone away in anger. That which I begged for with tears and overjoyed with comfort, I have lost for sin." Oh, what have I done against my God, yea, what against myself? What madness was this to gain my lusts and lose my God? I am like that great commander who sold himself for a drink of water. Thus break open the fountains within, and add sorrow to sorrow. Drink your tears like water, and mourn, and mourn again. Say, Oh, it is my folly that I have lost that which now I would redeem with my blood for lack of care. And once God has gone away, who can tell me when he will return again? He goes from many and takes his leave forever. And now if I go long in heaviness, I may only blame myself if my soul is spoiled with long hostilities and tyrannies of the power of darkness. Can anybody think of Barack Obama and the Democratic Party in that? God forbid if Hillary Clinton gets elected. I'll read that part again so you can remember it. I may only blame myself if my soul is spoiled with long hostilities and tyrannies of the power of darkness. And if my sins rage like the sea, and I walk as a shadow of death, my own hand has brought all this upon me, for God did not leave me until I left him. And furthermore, cause the waters of sorrow to rise yet higher, Look upon your former times and say, What was I then? What am I now? My silver has become dross. Take up the lamentation of the church and make it yours. How has the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? The stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. The precious stones of Zion, comparable to fine gold, how are they become as earthen pitchers, as the work of the hands of the potter. 
They that fed delicately are desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embrace dunghills. Her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. But now their visage is blacker than a coal. Their skin cleave to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. We are orphans and fatherless. Our necks are under persecution, and we have no rest. Servants have ruled over us, and there is none that doth deliver us out of their hands. The joy of our heart is ceased. Our dancing is turned into mourning. The crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us that we have sinned, for this our heart is faint. For these things our eyes are dim. Lamentations 4, 1 through 2, 5, 7. Lamentations 5, 3 and 5, 8 and 15 through 17. And again, I'll, take, I'll comment on this. Remember, church, remember you who have said nothing and done nothing, while all the evil and heresy and blasphemy and utter hatred of God has gone on around you and have said nothing because I'm not supposed to judge anybody. Nope, judge not. I judge not, judge not, judge not. Trust me, if you don't judge, you will fall. And into the very lamentations that the prophet Jeremiah spoke of, at those lamentations or when the Jews were killed for the most part and the remainder or the remnant of them were taken into captivity and these were God's chosen people. And if you think he could do it to them, he'll definitely do it to you. Okay? So, think about that. Read Lamentations and think about it. Think about what's going on right now in 2015. Anyway, I continue. Look about you and gather matter of sorrow into your hearts. Cast your eyes upon your ways and say, How little good have I done? How much evil... How poor is my life! My duties are like things without life, and my unfaithfulness in all my ways appears as the light. I wonder how I could own such actions, which all stand like the children of beggars, clothed with rags and full of vermin. Cast your eyes upon others and say, Such as had less engagements. Less encouragements than I have gotten far ahead of me. The last is first, and the first last. Many that should have been quickened by my life are instead grieved and dulled by my deadness. Look up to God and say, O foolish and unjust man, have I repaid the Lord my God in this way? Look up to heaven and say, by sowing much, I might have made my harvest rich and full. But now it is just that I, who sowed little, should reap little, and that having sowed vanity, I should reap iniquity. Repentance is the way to make up your losses and to repair your ruins. God has promised grace and mercy to the penitent. Remember from Indiana Jones, the penitent are the ones that bow before the Lord. Not just in person or, you know, and to, to make a show of bowing before God, but really doing it and, and really bowing to the Lord and humbling yourself before him. I quote, 
when thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, or have found thee, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee. End of quote. Deuteronomy 4, verses 29 through 31. Take then the counsel of the prophet, which he gave to Israel when God was departed from them. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words, and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, Take away all iniquity, and receive us graciously, so we will render no calves of our lips. Hosea 14, verses 1 and 2. You may find the same favor, and God may do for you as he promised to them. I will heal their backslidings. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the dew unto Israel, and he shall grow as the lily, and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread, and his beauty shall be as the olive tree, and his smell as Lebanon. Hosea 14, verses 4 through 6. Uh, just a quick note. I believe that's uh, concerning the cedars of Lebanon. The very cedars that Solomon used to build the first temple. Anyway, I'll continue. When, it, when Ephraim repented and mourned, God pitied him. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. Thou hast chastened me, and I was chastened as a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke. Turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 through 20. You see, then, what encouragement you have to seek in this manner, peace with God, and the quickenings of his spirit, which you have lost. Sin arms God against you, but he cannot hold back mercy from the humble. His promise has given repentance a power to prevail with him, and he will not contend with the brokenhearted. He has a special eye upon those who mourn, and will not hide himself from the cry of the afflicted. A contrite heart is a sacrifice which he will accept. Psalm 51, verse 17. He is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as are of a contrite spirit. Psalm 34, verse 18. The father of the prodigal made haste to receive and welcome his straying son, rejoicing that he was lost, was found again and that he was dead, was alive again. Luke 15, verse 32. This is the way. Walk in it. If God should deny such as repent, he should deny himself, because he has said, though he has been sorely displeased, turn you unto me, and I will turn unto you. Zechariah 1, verse 3. Until you repent, your sin is continued, and consequently, so is God's displeasure. And I'll take a note here. This is not a mental ascent of saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry God is not going to work. I mean, the kind of repentance is the kind of repentance that, you know, takes your hunger away. It takes your desire away for anything but Christ. 
to where you'll do nothing, you'll say nothing, you'll feel nothing until you feel that spirit, until you feel the Holy Spirit burning in you once again. If you think a mental ascent is going to do it, you better, you better think again. It's not going to happen. Anyway, let me continue. Therefore, seriously consider your case, for the lack of serious thought does great harm. If the heart is not affected enough, it may see that all is not well, and know the cause, because yet these things do not lie upon the spirit by ponderous thoughts. A man bears his misery, perhaps by complaining, but not by wisely and strongly endeavoring to remove it, and thus the heart is not quickly brought down. You must hold up the objects of spiritual grief by consideration, so that they may be able to bear down the heart. Therefore, ponder these two things carefully. Number one, the sad effects of the loss of God. See what blindness, barrenness, weakness, depravity, vanity, fears, and accusations of heart have arisen. What cries and clamors are in your soul? And now, what if afflictions come? How will you be able to avoid living a dying, fearful life in such a time? What if death comes? Either a black cloud of darkness will spread over you, or a storm of affrightments and terrors will torment you. And now remember that your sin has brought all this upon you. Number two, the sinfulness of the cause. Why did you neglect and despise your God? If you had not set him shamefully at a low rate, you would not have turned your back upon him. What? Could the infinite majesty and mercy of the Father, the incomprehensible love of the Son, and the unutterable comforts of the Holy Ghost not prevail with you? Do you see what you have done? Have you not said to the Father, I neither fear your majesty nor desire your mercy, and to the Son, I do not care for all your love, nor, that, nor for that you died for me, and to the Holy Ghost, I do not have any regard for your living counsels, influences, or high requirements. That's frightening. <laughs> Let me continue. Do you not hear them pleading with you, each for himself and each for all? They are one, and what you have done in this, you have done against each and all. Weigh well, then, what your carelessness and disobedience amounts to, so that you may love him with a humbled spirit, drenched in tears and clothed with shame. Settle the case now, so that God will not repay you in your kind, and that his heart should not be against you. For then you might bid peace, life, and hope Adieu forever. Consider further how God did follow you and entreated you not to go from him. Did he not tell you that he could not bear contempt and that you would bear sorrow for this in the end? That you would see that what you have done against him, you have done against yourself? Did he not kindly use you and were you not always welcome to him? O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. Micah 6, verse 3. And when you were going, did he not cry out after you? Return, thou backsliding Israel, and I will not cause my anger to fall upon you. For I am merciful, and I will not keep anger forever. 
Jeremiah 3 verse 12, yet you would not return. Consider now how long you have lived without him and how often God has called upon you to consider your ways. If you will let your thoughts out, you will find abundant cause for grief. And when you seek him with repentance, you will find him drawing near in mercy. And he will forget your unkindness, and you shall hear no more of them. Undoubtedly, your sins are very great in this. So great that sometimes God has been made to stop and consider what course he might take. When God promised mercy to his revolting people, he added, But I said, How shall I put thee among the children and give thee a pleasant land? And I said, Thou should call me my father, and shall not turn away from me. Jeremiah 3 verse 19. When the church had been disloyal, she at last fell to this course of repentance, and see the result. A voice was heard upon the high places, weeping and supplications of the children of Israel, for they have perverted their ways, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, ye backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Those are verses 21 and 22a. And oh, that you also would tread in their steps and say, We come unto thee, for thou art the Lord our God. Verse 22b. The Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul by Joseph Simmons. Part 14. Chapter 29. Two other directions on how to restore communion with God. Plead with Christ and set your hands to work. Third, go to Christ and beg of him to cause a spirit of life to come into you. I put yourself upon Christ, but take heed of mistakes here. Number one, think not that there is a greater willingness in Christ than in the Father or in the Holy Spirit to show mercy to you. You must honor the Son as you honor the Father, John 5, verse 23. They must have the same honor, for they are one. They have the same being, the same will, and the same thoughts. I and my Father are one, John 10, verse 30. They have the same friends. All thine are mine, and mine are thine, John 17, verse 10. Number two, think not that what you have from Christ, you have from him exclusively, for they are one fountain, and as they are one in nature, so they are one in all that mercy which is shown to us. Therefore cast honor upon Christ in such a way that you also honor the Father and the Spirit. All that Christ does as mediator, he does by commission, and therefore, he says that he comes to do the will of his Father, Hebrews 10, verse 7, John 6, verse 38. Look then upon this great mediator as one sealed of the Father and filled with the Spirit, yea, and clothed with our nature, standing between God and us to make both one and to convey to us all the riches of his Father. As the Son of God, he is equal with the Father, and has a natural and eternal sovereignty with the Father. But as mediator, his power is economical, dispensed and delegated to him. All power is given to me, both in things in heaven and in things on earth. 
Matthew 28, verse 20. Therefore, lift up your heads with joy and come to Christ. Pray for him to look upon a poor beggar. He has much power in his hand. He is the Lord of life. Say, Lord, I need much. You have called me to buy gold, raiment, and eye salve from you. Now behold my poverty, nakedness, and blindness, and pity me. Revelation 3, verse 18. Say to him, Lord, I would rather bear all evils than this evil. I could think myself happy if I might enjoy you, though all other troubles were upon me. Lord, you know what it is for a soul to be forsaken, for it was sometimes your own case, as when you cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? O oh, my Lord, unless you had divine support, it seems you did not have that inward joy which at other times did fill you. Now you are in your glory. Pity a worm in misery that mourns and desires more after you than in all things. Lord, you paid dearly for my good. Let good come unto me. I desire more from you, for you. Not merely that I might have more happiness, but that you might have better service. If you will give me much, I will return much. You have bid me, if my enemy hungers, to feed him. If he thirsts, give him drink. Romans 12, verse 20, Proverbs 25, verse 21. Lord, do not deny such mercies to your children. Though I have sinned, yet you are my father. And though you should have been angry, yet am I not your child? This shall be your glory when these dead and dry bones shall live, when the grave shall be opened and the bonds of death shall be loosed, and I shall walk before you. You said to the woman of Samaria that if she had known the gift of God and yourself, she would have asked of you, and you would have given her living water. John 4, verse 10. Now, Lord, I know you and this gift. Those waters would be sweet unto my thirsting heart. Oh, give unto me also. I remember your former mercies in my heart, both joys and dies. The remembrance of these sweetnesses delights me, but the thought of their absence afflicts me. I could not have desired your presence except by you. These desires are yours. Do not turn them back without their fulfillment. I was well without you, or so I thought, until you came to me. And since your coming, I fell asleep again and was at rest. But you have called me, and now, Lord, what will you do for me? A little will do me good, and I will bless you. There is no sorrow equal to this, to have your face hidden from me, and lusts and devils to break in. Lord, what and how many are the troubles of my soul? Oh, in the multitude of your compassions, help me. I am surrounded by a multitude of evils. Are you not set for the rising of them that fall, and to be a repairer of breaches? Is not your name Jesus, and is not salvation your employment? Oh, be a savior to me, and pull my soul out of the depths. Remember your covenant. Thus take up words and courage, and go to the throne of grace. Carry your empty sacks to your brother Joseph, for he is Lord of all Egypt. Stand not wasting yourself, and sad thoughts of your misery, but arise and pray. Turn the streams of your grief toward Christ. He will turn them into streams of joy. Sit not like Hagar, weeping in the desert for her child that is ready to die for thirst. Is the well not before you? 
Christ the fountain, or Christ is the fountain. Let down your bucket, drink, and live. Go with indictments against yourself in one hand, and with Christ's promise and your petition in the other, and you will be heard. If you will take this course, then say, You proud lusts and troops of hell, you must pack and be gone. You clouds of darkness and unbelief must be scattered. You chains of death must get you hence. There is no abiding for you, for here the king of glory will make his temple, his throne, and his rest. Come with your whole heart. Cold prayers and remissness of spirit lost what you seek, but fervent prayers will find again what you lost. Do not be discouraged, for here is the gate of life. He that dwells here is never away from home, nor ever asleep. Extend your prayers, and stay till the alms come. The thing is sure, only the time is in the Lord's hand. Many times prayer is lost because you do not wait for the answer. Lie at the gate. You need not fear to knock. For the Lord will not be angry. You may be urgent. Rest the door open by strong prayers. It is not shut because you should not enter, but because you should knock. Ask, leave, to enter. The bars of the gate are mercy, and your prayers are like explosives that break away into the city. Therefore, turn your fears into hopes, your complaints into prayers, and your lamentation into supplication, and Christ will turn your darkness into light, your deadness into life, your bondage into liberty, and your weakness into strength. Fourth, you must set your hands to the work. It is in vain to expect that God should help you if you will not help yourselves. You must use your hands as well as your tongues. Idle beggars must be whipped. He that will not work must not eat. Remember what I have said. You have a life in you if you are Christ. And as you have a life, so there is a never-failing presence of the Spirit to attend that power which you have. Therefore, if you put yourselves to doing what you are able, and as far as your power extends, God will draw near to you. It is true that that which you lack is out of your reach. You are not able to make crooked things to become straight or lay those swelling mountains of corruption level. But yet you must set to the work. Joshua could not cast down the walls of Jericho by sounding the ram's horns unless he set upon the work. And when the Midianites fall, there must be both the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Judges 7 verse 18. The father holds an apple to the child, but the child cannot reach it. His short arm must be put forth, and then the father, whose arm is long enough, will extend it to him. So you must be doing. Before I come to show what is to be done, it will be useful to convince you that regenerate men have the power to do something of themselves. I'll say that again. Regenerate men have the power to do something of themselves. For oftentimes men, misunderstanding the state of regeneration, do either excuse their negligence by pretended inability or lie down discouraged as having no power in their hands at all. How often do they complain and sigh in vain? 
Alas, I am nothing of myself unless God gives me heart and strength. What can I do? I can do nothing. To these, I would answer that these conclusions are ill-drawn from a true principle, which is this, that all is by God, for by nature we are dead. But it is ill-urged in this case, for the regenerate have a power to do good because they are living, and all life has a power to act. Otherwise, there would be no particular difference between a man who is regenerate and one who is unregenerate, if both are still dead and without strength. Furthermore, grace is a renewing of that image of God and holiness which we lost in Adam, Ephesians 4, verse 24, and this conveys with it a power to do what God requires. Therefore, as far as that image is repaired, there is power. If this were not so, we would not have as much of benefit by the second Adam as we had by the first. The first would have communicated his power to do good, and being corrupted communicates power to sin. Therefore, much more by Christ have we a power to do good in our measure. Objection. It may be objected that it is said, Without me you can do nothing, John 15, verse 5, so that it seems that we have not power in ourselves. Answer. The meaning is this. Unless you are implanted into me, you can do nothing. The word without me signifies separate from me or apart from me and only intimates this, that until we are knit unto Christ, we are but dead and barren branches. And this is how Christ explains it himself. As the branch cannot bring forth fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except ye abide in me. Verse 4. Objection. It is God that worketh both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Philippians 2 verse 13. Answer. This text proves what I say, that the saints have a power. It is true that it is from God. And therefore, we should work out our salvation in humility, not boasting in ourselves, for all is received from God. More fully, God is said to work the will and the deed by giving habitual grace, which is a renewed frame of heart, and in executing and strengthening this grace. And both of these are ever afforded to the saints, yet the latter waxes and wanes according to his pleasure, so that in the worst of times a Christian has a power to do good, although or though not alike at all times. And this power you must use, and put forth yourselves as you are able, or else you cannot with reason expect his help. A ship has instruments in motion, though not an internal principle. And if the mariner would have help by the wind, he must loosen the cables and hoist his sails. So must you do, or else you may lie still. Now, this is that which you are to do. Number one, to stir up yourselves. God has promised to meet you and to reach out his hand to help you if you are not lacking to yourselves. 
It is certain that by the strength of his endeavors alone, a godly man cannot raise up his soul or recover his loss. Though he should lay mountain upon mountain and pile endeavor upon endeavor, yet he could not reach that life which he seeks. The strength of all our endeavors is the grace and promise of God, but as endeavors without God cannot, so God without endeavors will not. Therefore, labor to quicken yourselves, that is, to work upon your heart by your understandings. As the striking of the flint and steel together begets fire, so the meeting of these two faculties, which have an internal life in them, do quicken the soul. God has made the understanding the guide and treasure of the soul, and upon this altar lies the fire of God. If these coals are stoked up and cast upon the heart, they will warm, melt, purge, and quicken it. There are two things in a renewed mind. Letter A, a treasure of habitual knowledge. This is the ark of God in which the tablets of the law are kept. The mystery of the gospel is engraved upon it. In this way, the mind is as the head to the body, which gives sense and motion to all the members. Spiritual truths are like the spirits in the head for the quickening of the soul. Letter B. There is a power to use and improve these truths. This is done by meditation and application, which awaken and provoke the will. As a man has power to counsel and persuade another, so also may he reason with himself using this discursive faculty. We see David pleading with himself in this manner. Well, sometimes he chides himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, and why art thou disquieted within me? Psalm 42, verse 5. At other times, he excites himself to duty. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Praise his holy name. Psalm 103, verse 1. At still other times, he comforts himself in God. Return to thy rest, O my soul, for God hath dealt bountifully with thee. Psalm 116, verse 7. In this way, it was a usual thing for him to talk within himself, or to talk with himself, for the mind has a language as well as the body. My rains teach me in the night season. Psalm 16, verse 7. I believe David means by rains the brain. Um, I'll continue. David found so much good in this that he puts all upon it. Commune with your hearts upon your beds, and be still. Psalm 4, verse 4. Bring out those truths which are laid up in you, and sharpen yourself with them. God has fitted you with faculties and powers to do this. You have an apprehensive faculty to gather in truths and notions, a retentive faculty to lay them up, and a recollective faculty to bring them out again. You not only have the power of intelligence, but also of reminiscence, so that you may call to mind and ponder things known, and call them out of the cells in which they lie, so that they might revive the heart. The understanding is to the heart as the breast is to the child, or as the stomach is to the body. All is fed by it. And again, I'll note that this stuff only applies to those who are already regenerated. These are not. This does not apply to the ungodly, 
these these faculties and powers do not lie within those who are not saved. This strictly refers to those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those who have been called by the Father and given to Christ and received salvation of Christ. And then after receiving Christ, being regenerated unto life by the Holy Spirit. Only then do you have all these things, okay? Without them, none of this even applies to you. None of what I'm reading even applies to you, okay? So understand that, okay? I will continue. Therefore, set upon your hearts with quickening thoughts, for as rubbing and chafing the hands or other parts with hot oils is a means to recover them when they are benumbed. So the plying of the heart with stirring thoughts and reinforcing arguments is a means to revive it. Among all thoughts, there are none more prevalent than those of sins past, of heaven, hell, eternity, love for God, and the death of Christ. These are strong cordials to cheer up the spirits. To help you in the work of dealing with your hearts, let me propound these rules. Letter A. Make every notion practical. Let the heart share with the understanding. Do not count yourselves better for a thousand notions unless there's some heat in them. Mind your hearts and strive to gain by all things. If you read hear, or discourse, let your aim and desire be to better your hearts. Letter B. Be frequent in thoughts, for mindless men are lifeless. Letter C. Be ponderous, for slight thoughts are weak in working. Letter D. Pitch upon things which most concern you. All are good, but some are more seasonable. Letter E. Observe the temperament of your heart, and so apply what is best suited to it. All thoughts do not have the same efficacy in all men. The constitution of men's souls differ. Learn to know your temperament. Letter F. When thoughts begin to take hold, work diligently with them. Keep the fire burning, and do not let it go out for lack of blowing. Letter G. Arm your thoughts with prayer. Beseech God to be in them. Thus, then, employ your minds. This is God's way. He will keep the method which he has set. God has appointed the mind to this office, and he will not fail to use it. Kings do all by their officers. God does not come into the inward temple except by this gate. All his workings upon the heart are in a rational way, are in a rational way which is suitable to the state of the creature. He deals with the heart by the mind, and upon the whole man by the heart, as the first pipe takes in water for itself and for all the rest. Whatever is in the cistern of the heart is conveyed by the mind. The heart is the spring in the pocket watch of your souls. Wind it up, and all the wheels will move. Number two, attend the ordinances. I will say no more of this, having met with it before. Number three, take the help of the saints. Crave their counsel and prayers. Use their company, for they are living, and they will impart their life. 
They will be helpful to the feeble. They have a spirit of compassion to comfort the necessitous. Woe be to him that is alone. If he fall, who shall raise him up? Ecclesiastes 4 verse 10. It may be that your forsaking of the assembly of these has brought you into this withering state. God has appointed the saints unto fellowship, and when they knit not themselves together, but carelessly out of pride, vain fears, envy, or any other ungodly principle, hang off from each other. They shall not prosper. Number four, do your first works. This is the counsel of Christ to a backsliding church, Revelation 2, verse 5. Do your first works for quantity. Do as much as you did before. You see how abatement has impoverished you. Therefore, work harder to make yourselves or to make up yourselves again. And as much as you are able, do them also for quality as you did before. Remember from whence you are fallen, and call to mind with what fear, reverence, diligence, intention of spirit, and tenderness you were accustomed to do everything. So do again. Objection. Alas, I cannot. This is my misery. If I could do as I have done, I could rejoice. Answer number one. You may do more than you do. Answer number two. See if the fault lies not more in the defect of will than of power, and stir up yourselves. If you were more willing, things would be easier. Answer number three. The more you strive, the more you will gain. The root of discouragement is unbelief. When God bids you repent, he knows how little your strength is and how hard your hearts are. And so, when he bids you pray, he knows what your infirmities are, both of immaturity and deficiency of grace, and those of sickness and declining from him. His intent is not that you should work these out alone, but he calls upon you to put your strength and will join with you to go hand and hand alongside you. I'll read that last part again. His intent is not that you should work these out alone, but he calls upon you to put to your strength and will join with you to go hand in hand alongside you. Therefore, awaken yourselves and be encouraged, for if you are doing, he will work with you, in you, and for you, so that you may recover yourselves again. And what are all your sorrows and labors compared to this recompense? If God will return again, you will think all labor and pains were well bestowed. Oh, how sweet will life be after such a time of deadness! How sweet will an established faith and clear understanding be after such mists of darkness and unbelief! I'm actually going to intercede right here for a second. I can attest to that myself. Okay, and I'm going to do a bit of a commentary after the end of this book and give sort of a testimony as I was in this position from May of 2012 to May of 2014 where I was in this very place for which I'm reading this book uh, that was written by Joseph Simmons to you, whoever you are who are listening. I've been there, and I'm telling you right now that this is all true. Okay, but let me continue. How sweet will liberty be after so long a time of cruel servitude? How sweet will victory and rest be after so long and so bloody a war? 
Now you dwell in the dust, surrounded by hellish lusts and unclean spirits, but you shall be filled with the Spirit of Christ and shall converse with God. It will be a sweet time when all things shall become new. The ordinances will be as the green pastures in which your souls shall feed and delight themselves. Your diseases shall be turned into health. You shall renew your strength as the eagles. All this will come to you when Christ comes to sit on his former throne to rule you with the scepter of his grace. And I pray to God that all that have been deserted may seek him and find him. This shall suffice for the first sort of spiritual desertions. Now follows another sort, if I may so call it, desertions which are in appearance only. Chapter 30 Of Desertions in Appearance Only, with Causes of Mistakes in this case. Having finished the first sort of desertions, or God's withdrawing of the quickening influence of his spirit, which is when a man truly is deserted, I come now to those desertions which seem such, but are not. A godly man sometimes may draw sad conclusions against himself and conceive that God has departed from him when it is not so. This mistake proceeds from such causes as these. Number one, fearfulness. This abounds in some more than others. The matter is weighty, and in such cases, man is apt to fear. One who is upon a tower, though the tower is sturdy and he is sure-footed, yet when he looks down, he is appalled at the dreadfulness of the precipice and counts himself in danger. This fear is increased in men because they know that they may sink into such depths, and they see that many have fallen. In a time of pestilence and great mortality, Fear takes hold of some so strongly that they sometimes think that they are stricken, and that they are going to the house of silence and darkness, when in fact they are in a healthful state. So sometimes do men think in this case. The tempers of some spirits are such that they are apt to fear. There are dusky clouds of melancholy darkening their reason, and they think that with or they think with that melancholy king Nebuchadnezzar that of all men they have become beasts, and so are ready to dispose themselves from that princely state in which they lived, to feed with the oxen. And to all this there is a working of the prince of darkness, who labors to hide the light and to increase the darkness and sadness of the fearful soul. And this fear, being raised, creates dismal visions and apprehensions, so that a man seems to himself to be metamorphosed, or metamorphosist, and he thinks he is one who has been cast out from God, when yet his case is good. Number two, a mistake in the cause of a present deadness. When men are clogged with indisposedness and ill-disposedness, they sometimes attribute this to God's withdrawing of himself, when indeed it is the fruit of their own carelessness, slothfulness, and untowardness. They do not take pains with themselves, but they allow their hearts to die and to be depraved, and then cry out that God has forsaken them. There is an aptness in men to charge God, but awaken yourselves, lest God withdraw indeed. Number three, in misjudging themselves. They think worse of themselves than they are, and there are sundry things which occasion them to make this mistake. Letter A, spiritual poverty. 
A poor man is apt to complain, and a humble man is apt to think mean thoughts of himself. There is one that maketh himself rich, yet hath nothing, and there is one that maketh himself poor, yet has great riches. Proverbs 13, verse 7. Some men's hearts are high when their worth is low. The emptiest bars stand highest, but the richest minds lie low. Mine, not mind. Mine isn't like gold mine. A humble Christian is a rich treasure, yet he thinks he is worth but little. But I must tell you, all is not gold that glistens. All in a godly man that seems to be grace is not. There is a bastard humility as well as a genuine humility. True humility is judicious, though it thinks meanly of itself, yet justly. It does not judge against truth. False humility is distempered and errs in judgment. It is a melancholy distemper and the habit of humility which can see nothing but ill sights and can see no good. When it looks this way, it cannot see the forest for the trees. It is ever in subtraction in its account of its real worth and matters of encouragement and always beyond measure in multiplication and addition of its faults, deficits, and all matters of, or all matters of discouragement. Ask him how he is, and he will tell you he is a beggar, a miserable man who is bankrupt, full of sin, and empty of God, seeing nothing, having nothing, tasting nothing, and doing nothing. Yea, he will tell you, but who can believe him that knows his rich worth, that he is worse than nothing? Let her be, hungering and thirsting after more grace. This is the sweet companion of humility, but it has this property to lead the soul still outward. It is so serious in seeking what it does not have, that it minds not what it does have. A covetous man is always poor because he is always wanting. He forgets what is behind and is still pressing toward that which is before. It is the fault of such as are filled with strong desires after God that they often forget what they have already received. Pride always feeds on what it has, but humility sees best what it does not have. But you should remember that strong desires after God are strong evidences of His presence. Other things are first desired and then attained, but spiritual things are first attained then desired. Without these desires, the heart would rest without God, and as it cannot be without some chief good, so it would seek it out of God. But when it is wheeled about with strong biases towards God, doubtless God is there. Number three, much love. This is closely related to the two former things, and is an occasion sometimes of sad thoughts in the heart. Love has qualities which expose the heart to trouble. Letter A. It is jealous, ever fearful lest it should lose the happiness which it now has in enjoying God. This jealousy, sometimes rising high, inclines a man to think that God is gone. It is the nature of a fearful heart to fall from care to fear, from fear to jealousies, and from jealous suspicions to sad conclusions. The mother, out of vehement affection for her child, if he is out of her sight, first takes care, then is filled with fears and sad conjectures, and at last cries out, Where is my child? Let her be. Love is liberal and is never satisfied. It would still do better and be better, and the more it is, the less it seems so to itself, 
and thus it is continually enlarged in dispositions and resolutions to do good. As it knows it cannot do enough, so it is apt to think it does almost nothing. Hence many complaints arise that love is not with them as in former days. That which they did before seemed much at the time because love was not much, but now all seems little because love is greater. But you should consider that God is much there where he works much, and that this flame of love is blown up by him, for God is love. 1 John 4:16a. That is to say, the fountain and author of love. And as love is eminently and infinitely in him, so it flows from him. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. That's verse 16b. Chapter 31. Men may also mistake themselves as deserted by judging with false rules. Judging by false rules is a cause of mistakes when a man seems to himself to be deserted by God, but indeed is not. For instance, false rule number one. Men judge that they are deserted and fear they are in a state of decline because they conceive that they have less quickness and vivacity than they have had previously. I confess this is an ominous sign, yet it is possible that there is no just cause for such sad conclusions, and to satisfy such, let me propound four things. Number one, distinguish between God's working in gifts and his working in graces. God is sometimes pleased to carry up the gifts of men very high, while their spiritual lives do not have proportionate elevation. We see he is much this way, sometimes in men that are not good. Gifts are given to the members for the body and for others' sakes. Oftentimes he pours out great measures and bears them on with a full gale of assistance. And when the work is done to which those gifts serve, then God may withdraw. I do not doubt that many faithful preachers may find a weakness and dullness in their gifts to be a sign of judgment upon the people. For the deafness of the hearers, God smites the messengers dumb, and so, in sundry cases, it might happen. It is said that Christ could do no mighty works in his own country, Mark 6, verse 5. His hands were, as it were, tied and bound. His power was suspended because of their unbelief, and where God had some great work to do, he opened the hearts of the apostles and much enlarged their spirits. Therefore, wisely distinguish between gifts and graces. Though you are not able to do as you have done before, Yet see into the frame and disposition of your heart toward God, for the latter may continue when the former fades. It may be that you have not had the occasion to use these gifts as you have had before, and unless they are used, they inevitably grow dull. The most expert musician by disuse may lose his skill, but note here that where there is occasion for use of gifts, and they are not stirred up, but permitted by idleness and carelessness to be quenched. This is a sin against the Spirit, and breeds a damp not only upon gifts, but upon grace. Number two. God may and does sometimes give more full assistance to the graces of his people than he will perpetually continue, and the abatement of this is no just cause for concluding that God has forsaken them. Letter A. In times of seeking him, and of immediate conversation and prayer and meditation and the like, there is a fuller taste of him than at other times. A godly man enjoys God in all things, 
but especially in duties of piety. There is an evident reason why a man has more of God than because grace is now acting and feeding upon God. Duties are the meals of a Christian, and other actions are his work. He comes in duties to receive strength, while in other things he uses it. The body gets strength and refreshment by eating, draws it out in working, and then comes to repair it again by eating. Times of immediate approach to God are meeting times. There is a mutual visit between God and the soul, and this is the proper end of these things, that God and the soul may meet together. It would be a happy thing if those impressions which the soul receives at such times were abiding, but such is our condition here, that we must hunger and eat, and when we are filled, we shall hunger again. Heaven is the place of constant life where there is a continual feast, but here we cannot have it so. The mind is but finite, and since it is necessary to converse with other things besides God, it cannot be expected that it should be so constantly filled with him. A man enjoys God as much as he seriously minds him. Therefore, those that neglect duties or slightly perform them must by necessity lose much of God. But it is not to be expected to carry such a spirit and other employments and activities as one has when conversing with God, though the more a man has in his duties, the better he will be in all things, and the fitter to meet God in all his seasons. Letter B. In times of great necessity. When temptations, afflictions, and dangers are many and great, God typically affords more of himself than at other times. A father, when his child comes to a ditch or deep way which he cannot pass, takes up the child into his arms, but when he has gotten over it, he sets him down again. So God, in such hard cases, ministers more abundant aid when he does not continue always. Hence we see that even the weakest of the flock become lions, and those that seem to be but little prove like mighty champions, victoriously conquering in difficulties, and treading underfoot the glory and terror of the world, yea, the fears of death itself. These, by transcendent nobility and a high courage of spirit, which are so far above their ordinary pitch, do declare that there is another power with them than their own, which makes them so gloriously to exceed not only others, but themselves also. As the Spirit came upon Samson when the Philistines came upon him, so it is in this case. But God is not always so at so much cost, when the necessities of his people are less, than he gives them their accustomed pension. When Israel was in the desert, a place barren of comforts, but full of troubles and uh, ex exigencies, I would think emergencies, God, by his mighty power, did work greater things for them than he ever did afterward, yet he was still their God. At the first coming of the gospel, the way being new, and so subject to the cavils and persecutions which Christ knew the world would raise against it, he poured out more of his spirit, and wrought with more glorious power than in succeeding ages. Yet the promise of Christ stands firm. Lo, I am with you to the end of the world, Matthew 28, verse 20. I'll interject here. It sounds here that uh, Joseph Simmons was a cessationist. I may be stepping out a little bit on that, but that's what I gather from that writing. Anyway, number three. There may be more quickness and vivacity of spirit at and around the time of conversion than afterwards. Hence, many conclude that they are sinfully abated, 
and that they have fallen from their first love. But although I do not doubt that this is indeed a just complaint in many, yet I believe that some do charge themselves without just cause. Note, therefore, that by two things there may be a greater flush of affection at that time than in the time afterward. Letter A. A newness of the condition. Naturally, new things affect much. The suddenness of the change, to be translated from blackness of darkness into marvelous light, does greatly affect them. In this case, distinguish between solid affection and fleeting passion. The soul of a new convert is put into a kind of astonishment to see such a strange and sudden metamorphosis. It is as if he had become another man, and the whole world were turned upside down, so that heaven stands where earth did, and the earth in heaven's place. High things are made low, and low things are set on high. These things will put the soul into amazement, but much of this will wear off. Suppose a man is going to his execution, and is great in heaviness and fears, but on the way, his pardon, along with the promise of the prince's favor, is brought to him. Methinks I see his heart leaping, his spirit dancing, and the man filled with abundant joy. But mark him, and in process of time you will see much of this vanishing, even though his life is still as dear as ever. Or suppose two persons married, sweetly conjoined in dear affections, are exposed to many dangers and difficulties. What a flush of joy is mutually expressed afterward! what violence of affection, happily enjoying each other's desired company. But in time much of this ceases, even though true love still remains. Do not count as grace everything which is working at the time of the first conjunction of Christ and the soul. There is much passion in it, albeit such as is holy and good. But as it was stirred up on special occasion, so as the occasion ceases, it, it may cease, and yet the case may still be good. The Jews were as those that dreamed when they were first delivered, but that dream did not always last. The lame man, when he was first healed, was seen walking, leaping, and praising God, Acts 3, verse 8. But though he was always glad of his recovery, yet he did not always leap and dance. Letter B. God does more at the first conversion for his people. He gives more assistance, for now a man is entering upon a new way, a way of difficulties, and all the power of hell comes out, as Pharaoh, to reclaim its escaped captives. Therefore God covers them with his hand and fills them with strength to grapple with this legion, and to break through these difficulties. God often pours in much comfort at that time. When the prodigal returned, his father made him very welcome, and called to his servant, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry, for this my son was dead, and is alive. He was lost, and is found. Luke 15, verses 23-24 Hence there was more, hence was more than of necessity, not only shoes, but a ring, not only clothes, but the best robes. Here is feasting, joy, and cheer, this son was as welcome afterwards, yet had not this entertainment every day. It may be that some of the comfortable presence of God which he then affords, and some of that abundant joy, may cease, because it was given upon a special occasion, and yet no just cause is given to raise such sad thoughts that God has forsaken you. Number four, 
There may be less activity, not from change of the spirit, but of nature. The body may be more feeble. Sickness or age may clip the wings of activity and take off much of a man's former vigor. The body is the instrument of the soul, and as he that rides upon a weak and tired horse cannot ride post, so when the oil of natural life and vigor begins to wane, it cannot burn as clearly as it had in former days. We see in sickness, when the natural strength is decayed, how the loss of spirits degrades them from that high luster, whereas they were admired in the time of health. It may be a caveat and warning to careless and dilatory spirits to be better husbands in opportunity, and while their blood is full in their veins, and their arteries are rich in spirits, to take hold of time by this golden forelock, and to make their voyage while they have full tide and wind, lest when death creeps on, and by diseases has dismounted them from their vigor, they find darkness and sleepiness to bind them in chains. But for those whose feet did run in the ways of God, and who were as the winged bird when youthfulness and vigor was in them, their breasts flowing with milk and their bones full of marrow, though now their nature being decayed, they seem less, yet their case is safe and good. Alas, when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men bow themselves, and those that look out of the windows are darkened, and when their almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper is a burden, and desire faileth, when the silver cord is loosing, and the golden bowl breaking, Ecclesiastes 12, verses 3 through 6. When nature is brought to this low state, how can it be that there should be that liveliness of soul which was there before? Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul, Part 15, Chapter 31 Second False Rule Men think they are in this sad condition because they do less than they have done. And I say that this is indeed an ominous sign, simply considered, because all things work as they are. And I desire not to be mistaken here, for I would not be so injurious to God or cruel to men as to nourish a slothful and backsliding person in his apostasy and carelessness. But I say that it is possible that less may be done than has been done previously, yet without all loss of life. For besides that which has been said before, I add, in way of satisfaction, these considerations. Number one. Perhaps that which was done before was more than should have been done. As other men are apt to fall short, so a godly man is apt to succeed, or exceed, especially when his necessities pinch him, and when the fears of God lay heavily upon his soul. He neither minds business, nor friends, nor himself, but is so intent upon this one thing as if it were the only thing which he had to mind. I have previously spoken at length of how a man may know when he has done so much that he may, with comfort, walk in his way. Number two, the abundance of doing is to rise and fall according to occasions. When a man is in straits, he may and must do much, yea, more than is required at other times. Number three, God may give less opportunity for the same abundance of holy duties at all times. He may put them upon such conditions and employments as may take them up more. A wife has a variety of obligations that attend the state of marriage which may deprive her of some opportunities which she had when she was unmarried. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. 
She that is unmarried cares for the things that belong to the Lord, and how she may please the Lord. But she that is married cares for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 34. The apostle does not mean that the married care not for the things of God, but that the condition will bring distractions. By God's appointment, they have put upon themselves such things that they cannot have that fullness of time for exercises of godliness which they had in a single state. In all abatements of spiritual action, a special eye must be had to the cause. If we thrust ourselves into a thicket of business unnecessarily, or have lost that edge of holy desires and dispositions which we previously had, then we have cause to lament our elongation from God. Chapter 32. Other False Rules Causing a Mistake in Judgment. False Rule number 3. More Stirring of Corruptions. Because men feel greater workings of lusts and corruptions than before, they think that God is not with them as before. But, by way of addressing these concerns, I must necessarily grant that this also is an ominous sign. Yet I will demonstrate that it may be the case of a man who is as full of God as ever. Number one, distinguish between corruptions formally considered and effectively considered. There may be many motions to sin which are not corruptions. They are corruptions when they corrupt and deprave the heart. Christ himself had motions to sin. These did not rise from within himself, but were caused by the tempter, so that his soul was as a glass of pure water jostled. And although the motions to sin which arise from that sinfulness in us are formally an in interpretation of the law, Sins, yet unless they take hold of the heart and so infect it, they are not corruptions, nor such as argue less of God. When a man lives in an unhealthful and infectious air, the power of God is much seen in keeping him up in health. So also the power of the Spirit is much put forth in that soul which is kept sound from the plague in the midst of infectious and poisonous workings and foaming of that sinfulness within. This was the Apostle's case. He had some burning lust like a splinter or coal in the flesh, but God kept him. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. Number 2. A man may have more occasions to stir corruptions than before, and occasions to lusts are as wind to the sail or fuel to the fire. It may be that you thought better of yourselves than you had cause to. You might think you had more meekness when you were less angry. But it may be that your anger was not so much, not because your meekness was great, but because your offenses were few. Know this, that occasions do not so much beget as bring forth corruptions. Number three, it may be that your lusts do not have more life, but they seem to because you yourself have more life. Letter A. You had more light to see them. At first, grace is busy about the outward man and grosser sins, but afterwards it descends into the lower and more retired parts of the soul, and by the candle of God searches the hidden depths. And finding still new worlds of sin, you are apt to think that you are worse than you were before. The puddle smells 
when it is stirred. The sun shows a great deal of dust in the air, which you knew was there before, even though you had not seen it before, when the sun shone not so brightly upon it. Letter B. You have more sense. When there was but little life, many lusts might work unfelt, but now every touch of sin is felt. Therefore you may think it amiss, and that you have more of corruptions, when indeed the cause is not the increase of sin, but of grace. The apostle made nothing of lustings and many other things, till grace had incorporated itself, and made him quick to feel the bitter and stinging workings of it. Romans 7, 21-25 Number 4. It may be that your life has been in a continual tumult and warfare, with great afflictions of body and mind, so that corruptions had no time to work. But now, being brought to a greater calm, they begin to stir. In a tempestuous day, the birds hide themselves in the hedges, and the conies in their holes, a coney being a rabbit. But when the storms have passed, then they come forth. While Rome was held in wars, and while the Athenians were buffeted by the Lacedaemonians, their own dissensions and internal evils lay asleep. But when they had rest, then that which lay hidden broke forth to their great hurt. Men who are heavy laden with weighty concerns, living in crowds of affairs or distracted with great cares and fears, are free from many vices in their lives, which break out when they have more liberty. Consider carefully if there has not been some eminent change in your conditions, for a calm state is subject to many inconveniences of this kind, because it is not because or but it is not because lusts have more life, but because they have more advantage. Number five God may permit Satan to work in men, and allow their corruptions to be drawn out, so that they may be more mortified. We take up arms and fight much when we see our enemy coming upon us. If the enemy had kept in his trenches and holds, he would have been safe. But by coming out, he falls into our hands. The rats and mice are secure in their holes. But when they show themselves by coming out, they are taken and killed. Therefore, when the snuffed-out candle that you thought was extinguished, smells and begins to burn again, it is then that you may make super work in more fully extinguishing it. False rule number four. Men are too much swayed by the opinion which others have of them. If they are censured or rejected or discountenanced by such, it makes deep impressions upon them, especially if they are near, beloved, wise, godly, or such as know them. There is a disposition in man to be much affected with the judgment which he knows others to make of him. Hence come those inquirers into others' breasts, to see what shape we hold in their mirrors, even as the emperor acted himself dead, and caused his funeral to be solemnly performed, his hearse erected, his followers clad in mourning, and himself carried as a dead corpse, while in the meantime, though a secret pass or through a secret passage, he might observe what respect he had in his subjects' hearts. 
Hence also arise suspicious and secret dejectments of mind upon conjecture of disesteem and the disapproval of others. Hence also vain glorying and supercilious elation of mind upon the applause and fame which men have with others. And indeed, to be approved by wise and good men is both desirable and honorable. The concurrence of their testimony is a glorious thing. For the same reason, the disfavor and ill opinion of such to an ingenuous spirit is an unhappiness. But sometimes there is too much weight laid on these things. If the opinion and judgment of others were infallible, reason would require that we should mold our thoughts of ourselves to the model of other men's opinions. But others are not always competent and sufficient judges in this case. Therefore, as their sentence is not to be wholly neglected or completely neglected, so it is not to be too much valued. God sometimes reveals his displeasure by stirring up his servants against men, such as when the master of the family will estrange himself from one. He bids his children and servants to show him no countenance. If this is your case, you should humbly and wisely consider it, and say as David when Shimei reviled him, The Lord hath bidden him. 2 Samuel 16, verse 11. Consider yourselves, and rest no way in the sentence which men give, but appeal from them to the supreme judge, studying to approve yourselves to God, for he is a Jew which is one inwardly, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Romans 2, verse 29. False rule number five. Men think they are not growing, and hence conclude sadly against themselves. They think the time has been when they arrive, or when they thrived more in grace, and that therefore they are in this deplorable state of which we speak. But here may be great mistakes, and for the relief of such, let me propound some considerations tending to the rectifying of their judgment in this case. Number one, to the weak spirits, the growth in some graces sometimes hinders the discerning of growth in others. Besides that spiritual poverty and humility which I have spoken of, the increase of light proves sometimes an impediment. Letter A. The more light, the more weight lies upon the soul concerning the matters of eternity, which sometimes raises up care and solicitousness to such a height that a man is disposed to fear and jealousy concerning his condition. Letter B. The more light, the more duties are discovered. A Christian does not see all of his work at first. God raises up his way to his eye by degrees, even as a child is put at first to such things as are proportionate to his age and strength. And as he grows in years to more capacity and ability, so he is put on to greater things. Thus the godly, finding still a disproportion in their strength to their work, may think that they are not growing. And yet this would be as if one took the measure of his height against a tree, and coming afterwards to measure his growth, found not only that he does not exceed, but scarcely reaches his own mark, should rightly conclude that he has not grown. Yet this is not good reasoning, because the tree has also grown. It is also as if one that tries his strength by shaking a tree when it is young comes some years later, and upon trial finds that he cannot stir the tree more. 
if he should conclude that he has not increased in strength, he would have judged amiss, not considering that the tree has also grown more sturdy and less apt to be moved. The task of a godly man grows, his relations, state, temper, calling, company, temptations, and such, like things, cause great variations in his work. And God uses a gracious indulgence in not imposing so much in the infancy as in the progress of his people. And, as many things are not imposed at first, so the spirituality and exactness of duties is more and more revealed. And hence it is that the godly, laboring still with weakness and disproportion of strength, do sometimes think, though carelessly, that they grow not. Number two, there are different types of growth. Letter A, there is growth upward in hope, peace, and joy. Letter B, there is growth downward as a tree that grows in the root. Thus many grow in humility and lowliness, and therefore, as I have showed, they are apt to think meanly, yea, meaner of themselves, than is appropriate. Letter C, there is growth in bulk as when a tree grows larger. Letter D, there is growth in maturity. A child may grow a great deal more in bulk and quantity than in ripeness and dexterity, but afterward he grows more in the perfection of his parts than in the extension of those parts. He grows more strong, active, apprehensive, and wise. So a godly man grows. At first he is much in the bulk of knowledge and grace, but after this he becomes more mature, knowing the things which he has learned better, more practically and vitally, and thus he becomes able to do what he did more spiritually and perfectly. An apple grows larger and larger for a time, but afterward it grows more ripe and sweet. Now men who do not understand this are apt to think that they grow not, when in fact they do. Number three. Men often mistake in the judgment of their growth by being too hasty. The judgment of growth is by comparing oneself with oneself. But if a man measures himself today, and a week hence measures again, his growth, though it is real, will be imperceptible. When you compare yourselves with yourselves, if you find no growth, then you look upon yourselves at a greater distance. If you cannot discern growth by comparing yourselves with what you were a year ago, then see what you were two years, or three years, or even seven years ago. And now tell me if you find not yourselves better, if not sensibly increased in bulk, yet at least in maturity and spiritualness of your graces. Number four. Growth is not always equal. Sometimes a child shoots up more in one year than afterward in two or three years. So also grace grows not so fast at some times than at other times. In the body, growth may be hindered by diseases, wounds, obstructions, or poor diet. So also in spiritual growth. But in cases, a man must take heed of concluding that God has deserted him, or, as I have said before, it is not every fit of unproficiency which argues a man is in such a state. 
Yea, all things considered, it may be that although growth in times past exceeds the present growth, yet a man, considering the abatement of means of growth, with other strong impediments of growth, that man may have as full a presence of God with him, though he for a time grows not as he did. Therefore, do not be hasty in passing sentence. For as many have declined, but knew it not because of slackness and slowness of judgment of themselves, so others, by hastiness in judgment, conclude they are deserted when they are not. Chapter 33. To those who have their comforts removed, the nature of the comforts of the soul. Now I come to the other head of spiritual desertions, the eclipsing of the comfort of the soul. This is oftentimes the sad case of the saints. The sons of peace and consolation are often men of sorrows, cast from a paradise of comfort into a wilderness of discomfort, wandering in a maze of perplexed thoughts, heavy care, afflicting fears and bitter sorrows, being vexed with roarings and yellings of devouring beasts, yea, rent and wounded, and almost becoming a prey unto them. Before I come to address this mournful state in which the sweet streams of comfort fail, leaving the soul as a parched heath, I must premise some considerations about the comfort of the soul. The nature of it, chapter 33, the cause of it, chapter 34, and the defects of it, chapter 35. First, the nature of it. It is cheeriness or satisfaction of the soul. The name shows the thing. Comfort is from a word which imports strength. And what is comfort but strengthening of the heart? It is expressed by strengthening in the scriptures. Psalm 27, verse 14. Psalm 52, verse 7. Psalm 104, verse 15. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. Job 4, verse 4. Isaiah 35, verse 3. So then discomfort is the enfeebling or weakening of the soul, so that it cannot walk in its way, but falls and faints. But comfort keeps her upon the wing, and maintains, yea, increases her strength. It is the life of the soul. So when Naomi would express that Boaz should be a comfort to Ruth, she said, He shall be the restorer of thy life. Ruth 4 verse 15. For take away the contentment of the heart, and it dies. The damned live in hell, yet because it is a life without comfort, they are said to die, and their estate is reckoned a state of death. They are dead while they live. Hence David called it a quickening. Thy word hath quickened me, Psalm 119, verses 50 and 93. Restoring of comfort to mourners is called reviving. I dwell with them to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 57 verse 15. So it is said of Jacob when he heard of his son and saw the wagons which he had sent. The spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Genesis 45 verse 27. Those words of Ezra are not unlike. Grace hath been revived that our God might lighten our eyes and give us a little reviving in our bondage. Ezra 9, verse 8. Comfort, in a word, is that strength of life which the object contributes to the heart. There is then a difference of comfort, according to the difference of objects. 
Every good thing which a man has, either in expectation or possession, yields a comfort proportionate to its worth and a man's portion in it. All good things in the world are as defense of the soul, or her fort against invasions of fear, care, trouble, or misery. So that as he that has the best guard, strong and able soldiers, is strongest and safest. So the heart is so much strengthened as it has of good. The best things yield the best comfort, as the freest fountain yields the fullest streams. But forasmuch not only the property of the object, but the portion also is the measure of comfort. Therefore, according to the degrees of enjoyment of God, so are the degrees of comfort. Those in heaven, being fully possessed of God, have a fullness of comfort. In thy presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, verse 11. But the saints in the world have but an imperfect comfort. Number one, their comfort is not stable. Sometimes it is gone, and a day of gladness is turned into a night of heaviness, so that they complain as the church, the joy of our heart is ceased, our dance is turned into mourning. Lamentations 5, verse 15. Number two, their comfort is not full. It is mixed with various fears and sorrows, which, like the waters of Merah, flow into the soul. For, though the object of comfort is sufficient, yet the assurance and enjoyment of it is deficient. Even as the soul is comforted because it has got in a measure, so it is troubled because it is still lacking, not being so sure and full of him as it desires. There are three degrees of spiritual comfort. Letter A. Peace. When a man agrees with himself and is freed from that war and combustion which was within him by incursion of fears, or fears and terrors of the soul, this is a rest in the soul. A rest, I say, but not from motion, but from commotion and tumult. An uncomfortable state is a tumultuous state. My bowels boiled and rested not, Job 30, verse 27. He was like the sea, moving and working. It is a tempestuous condition. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted. Isaiah 54, verse 11. Comfort is the quieting of the storm, the hushing of the winds, the stilling of the raging sea. When a man has comfort in God, he has a twofold rest. Bracket number one. Mental. While God is hidden, the mind is agitated, and rolls to and fro to seek him, hunting and beating itself out and running after him. But when it does see him, then it is quieted, and says as David, Return to thy rest, O my soul. Psalm 116, verse 7. Bracket number 2. Emotional. The heart sits in heaviness until it recovers what it has lost. Unquietness abides with it. If the mind is puzzled, the heart is troubled. If the pilot is disconsolate, how are the passengers afflicted? What tears, what, or what tears, what paleness, what ringing, what fainting may one see there? What sighing, crying, howling, and screeching may one hear? In such a troubled case is the heart when God hides himself and will not be found, like Rachel weeping for her children and will not be comforted because they are not. 
Jeremiah 31, verse 15. But when the soul sees God, then it is quiet. The cries of the heart are stilled, her wound is healed, her pain ceases, and all is calm. Letter B. Joy. This is a higher degree of comfort. Peace is negative comfort, while joy is positive comfort. The former is a cessation or mitigation of trouble, but this is a higher contentment. Peace is like the quieting of the storm, but joy is like the breaking out of the sun. A woman in childbirth, when the pain ceases, is at rest, but when a child is born, she has joy. A condemned man, when he is pardoned, is at peace. His fears and sorrows cease. But if, with his pardon, he attains preferment, he rejoices. There is a kind of joy in peace, and so joy is the fruit of peace and rest. I'll say that again. Joy is the fruit of peace and rest. And yet it is a further contentment than mere peace. Sorrow is turned into joy, John 16, verse 21, but first it is turned into peace. Joy is the noontide of comfort, and peace is the morning. Peace is a return to itself after it has been tossed and driven from its desired state, but joy is an ascent above itself. Peace is a rest within itself, while joy carries the heart higher. It is a kind of elation which, if it is strong, it is called exultation, a kind of vaulting and leaping of the mind, yea, a leaping out of itself, not the kind of leaping and joy and stuff that you find in the, in the profane church with the rock bands and the kids jumping up and down and people singing and clapping and all of that. That's not the kind of joy that Simmons is talking about here. Peace is contentment when the heart is bounded by its condition and is not effused and poured out of its own channel as the river is when the channel is too scant or not passable. But joy is an enlargement of the heart. Psalm 119 verse 32. The heart opens itself and is filled with the thing that it loves. Letter C. Triumph and glorying, which is joy elevated. This consists of two things. Bracket number one. A victoriousness and magnanimous conquest of the heart over all things. When the heart is raised to this pitch of comfort in God, all the world is brought under a man, and the greatest evils cannot daunt. There is such a graduation as we speak of in Romans, verse, or Romans chapter 5. We have peace towards God, verse 1. We rejoice in hope, verse 2. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, verse 3. Bracket number 2. A boasting and holy vaunting of heart. The word which is used by the apostle for glorying imports a jutting out or strutting of the neck. It is often used by the apostle for boastings. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 8. Romans 2, verses 17 and 23, and Romans 11, verse 18. A man boasts when he is full of that which he thinks excellent, adding worth and excellency to him. When a man counts it not only happiness, but honor to have such a God, and is not only not ashamed of him, but in his account magnified by him. 
when he is able to hold up his spirit against the pro-offers and terrors of the world to profess heaven and earth amidst all the blasphemies, jealousies, threats, sufferings, and vainglory which are in the world, that God is good, sufficient, and worthy of all love, fear, and trust. I'll read that again. God is good, sufficient, and worthy of all love, fear, and trust. I say when the heart comes with such undauntedness and full contentment and sets God against all, this is a holy boasting of God, or in God, even as David declared, I will bless the Lord at all times. His peace shall be continually in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Psalm 34, verse 2. In God, we boast all the day long and praise thy name forever. Psalm 44, verse 8 and Psalm 64, verse 10. Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul by Joseph Simmons. Part 16, Chapter 34. The Causes and Root of Comforts of the Soul. Now, from the nature of spiritual comfort, let us descend to the cause and root of it. And that we may not run too large a compass, we will confine ourselves to the causes efficient and material. First, the efficient cause is various, but we will only pitch upon the principal working cause, which is God, who is called the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Here I will discuss briefly two things. Number one, that it is of God. Number two, how it is wrought by God. Number one, that comfort is of God, or that comfort is of God, appears thus. Letter A. Suppose a man is dead and trespasses in sin. Here the same power which is required to give life is also needed to give comfort. Letter B. Suppose one is troubled in spirit and vexed with fears. Here no less power can comfort than the power of God, for comfort in this case is an act of supremacy. It is a, or in a civil state, none can take off the chains of imprisonment but he that put them on. All creatures in heaven and earth cannot loose him whom God has bound. Though all should speak well, yet if God frowns, chides, smites, or condemns, this prevails because he is supreme. Nothing can comfort except what God alone can give, such as pardon from sin and deliverance from hell, and to know what only God can reveal, such as whether sin is pardoned and God is reconciled. These are things only God knows, and no one can know them except those to whom he reveals them. And furthermore, when God afflicts, he does it for an end, and until that is compassed, the soul lies in the depths. Grief and fear are meant to bring the heart in to Christ. Therefore, none but he who is sent forth as the physician can cure the sores as wounds of a broken spirit. And when God shakes the soul with his power, there is a disposition to set towards him that nothing can satisfy except God's favor. Letter C. Consider what comfort is. 
it is a strength or satisfaction of spirit. That then which comforts must be proportionate to or exceeding that which may cause grief or trouble. Now, if a man is in great afflictions from the world, that which can comfort must be something greater than the world. Or if he is afflicted by terrors of conscience, comfort cannot be by anything but one that is greater than conscience. If death, sin, hell, and wrath disquiet the soul, what good in heaven or on earth can outweigh these but God himself? Number two. Note how this comfort is wrought by God. There are three acts of God concurring in this work of comfort. Letter A, preparation or disposing of the soul for comfort by giving sight, faith, and fitness. Letter B, delivery of the matter of comfort. And letter C, attestation. Letter A, preparation. This is done in three ways. Bracket number one. First, God illuminates the understanding to see the true fountain and proper object of true comfort with the means and conditions of it. Until a man knows the excellency of spiritual things with their sufficiency and eternity and until he sees them as attainable, either the heart is deluded with the dying vanities of the sinful and mortal life or it is held under the terrors of a guilty, accusing, misgiving, and despising conscience. Though there is incomparable worth and most delightful sweetness in Jesus Christ, yet what is this to him that dwells in darkness? The understanding is the gate both of life and comfort, and as the heart rules not what the eye sees not, so it joys not in what it knows not. I'll read that again in case you missed it. The understanding is the gate both of life and comfort. And as the heart rules not what the eye sees not, so it joys not in what it knows not. It is necessary to true and strong consolation that a man has sight. This sight must be, lowercase Roman numeral one, clear. Dark visions breed, but weak comforts. Darkness is the harbor and womb of doubts. And in this case, so far as the soul doubts, it dies. If a condemned man has a writ of pardon, that's a letter of pardon, but it is written either for letter or language in such a way that he cannot read or understand it, though his pardon is his life indeed, yet it is but small comfort at present. Roman numeral number two, lowercase, broad. The heart cannot be established and stilled with comfort until the full extent of the object of comfort appears. Unless the mind sees things in all their due requisites, which make them able to comfort fully, there will be something missing from a peaceful state, such as if he sees the worth, but not the fitness of it, or if that yet not possibly of it, or if that yet not the sufficiency of it or if that yet not the perpetuity of it. I'll read that again, just in case you missed it, so you don't have to rewind. Unless the mind sees things in all their due requisites, which make them able to comfort fully, there will be something missing from a peaceful state, such as if he sees the worth, but not the fitness of it, or if that yet not the possibility of it, 
or if that, yet not the sufficiency of it, or if that, yet not the perpetuity of it. I say, if any one of these does not appear, the heart will remain unsatisfied. What a check to contentment in a thing is this, when, though a man sees it as good, yet he says, it is not fit for me, it does not please me, or it is not possible, I cannot obtain it, or it is not sufficient, it will not serve my turn, or it is fading and not certain, and I may lose it again. Roman numeral 3, lowercase. Actual. For not knowing good, but minding good, does comfort. Habitual knowledge does not comfort. It has a power to comfort, but until our knowledge is actual, it does not give actual comfort. It is but as a fire in the embers which does not warm a person unless it is blown up into a flame. The rich promises laid up in a knowing man are but as bread in the cupboard which, unless by actual knowledge the mind feeds upon, he starves. If a man has much wealth in his chest, unless he takes it forth for his use, how is he happier than a beggar in having it? Though the well is full of water, yet unless a man draws it out, he will thirst. We must not forget our consolation. Unmindfulness breeds uncomfortableness. When, therefore, God will give comfort, he is the remembrancer for his people. Roman numeral number four, lowercase. Serious. Fleeting thoughts break flashy comforts. Passing views and glances of the mind cannot raise a settled comfort. Nay, rather, they discomfort as much by their vanishing as they comfort by their presence. The fruit of such sights is God, or the fruit of such sights of God, Christ and heaven, yield a present but a transient blaze of glory, like fire in a straw, soon up and soon down. Yea, this sweetness leaves a bitterness, and wounds the heart to lose that so quickly which it had so happily. In this way, by such transitory gusts, the soul indeed learns more how to prize the things for their sweetness, and how to lament them for their absence, and not his comfort, but his sorrows are increased by such cursory views. Cursory Views this is sure, that unless our light is permanent, our comfort will be transient. Transient meaning it goes from place to place and it's not there, it's not solid, it's not stable. And the heart will be, or will still be, unsatisfied. These fits of glaring light are but like lightning, or lightning in the darkness, which do not make it daytime. It is still nighttime in the soul, because the sun has set over it. When therefore God comes, he fixes the eye of the soul upon himself and the good things of his grace. Bracket number two. The second act of preparation of the heart for comfort is the working of faith, which is the main organ of comfort. Although a man may know the gospel, yet unless he believes it, all the glorious treasures of grace and mercy in it are but as a golden dream or a pleasant tale or as a fire which is painted on a wall, which yields neither light nor heat. The word does not profit him that does not believe it. This was the case of the Jews. They had great promises made to them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. Hebrews 4 verse 2. As exceedingly strong drink, not tempered and qualified, profits not nature, 
So those great promises, so much exceeding opinion and expectation of reason, not being mixed with faith, did not profit them. Or, as some conceive, the metaphor lies thus. As he who drinks of an empty cup, so were they who did not believe. The promise to them was but as an empty cup. They were not united by faith to them that heard, in other words, to them that believed, so that they had not the same benefit by the word. Faith, then, is a necessary requisite, and that as a condition upon which comfort is given, and as an instrument by which it is received, for faith gives the promise life and subsistence, though not in itself, yet in us. Unless the gospel is believed, it has no dwelling, no root, no power, no life, no being in us, but is as a thing that is not. Therefore, God works faith, which does enable and dispose the soul to suck sweetness from the breasts of consolation. Joy and peace are fruits of truth. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. Romans 15, verse 13. Bracket number three. The third act of preparation is sanctification, which is simply necessary to true comfort, both as a condition of the covenant, for without holiness no man shall see God, Hebrews 12, verse 14, and as a disposing to the soul. For these two things are required to make a man capable of comfort. Roman numeral number one, lowercase, life. When a man is dead in himself, he is dead to all things, and all things are dead to him. The best cordials are no better than puddle water. The richest wells are no better than the meanest trash to a dead man. Roman numeral number two, lowercase, suitableness. What comfort does a piece of meat yield to a sheep, and what is a rich pasture to a man? That is only comfortable, that is good to a man, and that only is good which is convenient. The best drink is but as poison to him who has an antipathy against it. The nature of man is such, that since it has forsaken God, it so cleaves to the creature, that until it is healed, it is not capable of spiritual comforts, and would no more live in God than a fish in the air. I'm going to read this again for those uh, who wish to use this as a position to defend Calvinism against Arminianism. Okay. The nature of man is such that since it has forsaken God, he's talking about man's nature, that nature of man is such that since it has forsaken God, it so cleaves to the creature that until it is healed, that is healed by the physician who is Christ, it is not capable of spiritual comforts, and would no more live in God than a fish lives in the air. There you go. There is a certain compass of goodness which every creature walks in. The world is dividing among them, and every sort of creature has its latitude, which is bounded by its particular form and disposition. The fishes keep below in the waters. Their walk is in the deeps. The beasts inherit the earth and go no higher. They mind not honor, riches, learning, and so forth. These are not the flowers of Eden, which mankind has in its possession. 
and these things are the highest things of a natural man. But heaven, the gospel, God, and Christ, these are the portion of the spiritual man, the new creature. Men must be elevated above the pitch of nature, as it now is, to live in these things. The eye is made for light and colors, the ear for sounds and voices, the smell for savors, the mind for truths, and the will for good. In this way, everything is fitted for its object. And, as in motion there is no rest but in a fit place, so the soul could not be quieted and pleased in spiritual things unless there was a fitness and agreement between them. There are some vanities and imperfect motions of a natural will that is heightened by the gospel, but these do not give true comfort because the will closes not. It is easily moved from them, like a round body upon a plane is easily moved, but because it has a weak hold, it touches in, but or touches but in a point. But a plane or square body upon a plane stands fast and has full rest, because their surfaces do agree, and they mutually meet and close together. Letter B. The second work of God in giving comfort is the delivery of the matter of comfort. God bestows things comfortable. These are the food and fuel of joy. When God says, be of good cheer, be comforted, he does not do as those whom the apostle reproves. And here's the reproof. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of their food, and you say unto them, depart in peace, be you warmed and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what does it profit? James chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. When God comes to comfort, he gives that which makes comfort. Precious promises and sweet mercies, such as pardoning grace, light, heaven, his favor, presence, ordinances or laws, and Christ. Who is able to sum up the riches and treasures which God bestows upon his people as a portion to live upon? Great things in possession are greater still in reversion. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee. Psalm 31, verse 19, and Isaiah 64, verse 4. When a man sees himself so fully stocked, he may, with mirth and gladness, say to his soul, Soul, take thine ease. Thou hast much goodness laid up for many years. Luke 12, verse 19. Having such a portion, he is a rich man, enjoying such a sufficiency as is a strong basis for rest and contentment, and makes him like a life above men, a life only in degree inferior to the life of angels. That paradise which God made for Adam was as a desert to this Sharon. Those fruitful trees were but shadows of the happiness which is in this new Eden, the garden which God has planted for his people. Letter C. The third work of God in comforting his people is attestation. The soul is exposed to many controversies and is prone to unquiet agitations, not being easily satisfied. 
Though we have a present happiness, yet the soul has a provident and solicitous eye upon future times, and extends its cares and fears even to eternity. Add also unto this that the mind is hardly satisfied in that which it does not comprehend, and sinful reason will be wrangling when it does not see its way and end, but is asked to take all upon trust and credit. And in things of importance, a serious and fearful man is apt to entertain jealousies, and will scarcely believe what he sees. Even though God pronounces him blessed, yet he is apt to call his tenure into question and cast himself into doubting. The doubts and controversies by which the soul is vexed may be reduced to two heads, those concerning the gospel and those concerning themselves. Bracket number one. The first question is about the gospel. There is an abundance of unbelief in the soul. It is a rare and difficult thing to believe. There are two things which much hinder faith. The first being a disposition in man to judge of all things by sense or reason. The second is the inevitance of the gospel. As things are more or less clearly propounded to sense or reason, so they are received with greater or lesser degrees of assent. A philosopher believes more strongly that the sun is much larger than the earth, or that there will be an eclipse at such and such a time, than does a countryman. When we say the object of faith is not evident, we must distinguish of evidence. Evidence is either of narration or the thing itself. Evidence of narration is when a thing is so expressed that it may be understood. So the scripture is evident and clear. But evidence of the thing itself is when either sense or reason apprehends it. Thus, the things of the gospel are inevident, such as, I have not seen nor ear heard, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. The gospel is divided into doctrine, history, and prophecy. Roman numeral number one, lowercase. The doctrine has in it something that is evident, and easily falls within reason, or easily falls in with reason. There are things in it which pertain to natural philosophy, elements, men, beasts and trees, to ethics, moral rules and virtues, to economics, precepts for ordering families, to politics, laws for cities and commonwealths. These, thing, they are, these are things a natural understanding can deal with, but there are other things of a more high nature which are called supernatural, the trinity, incarnation, and resurrection. These are above reason. Roman numeral number two, lowercase. The history is of things past and have no evidence to sense. For what can the eye see, or for what can the eye see of paradise, the flood, the ark, and so forth, nor to reason by anything in itself? How should reason conclude that such things have been unless they are related and revealed? Roman numeral number three, lowercase. The prophecy speaks of things to come, and are as such that a man cannot see them. A philosopher may see the effects in their causes, for they come within such a course. However, no creature can, by reason, conclude its future, but as its being depends upon God's will. So the manifestation that the prophecies will be fulfilled is only by God's word. Hence, it is that nature. 
being so unapt to receive things upon trust and desiring to see all, hold to rules of sense and reason, is with great difficulty brought to believe the gospel. Because of unbelief, we need a divine assistance, which is the working of faith, and witnessing unto faith, or the believer, the truth of the gospel. I'll just make a quick comment here. He says, because of unbelief, we need a divine assistance, which is the working of faith, and witnessing unto faith, or the believer, the truth of the gospel. That's not meaning that you can conjure up faith within yourself. The faith is not your faith. It's got to be someone else's faith. It can't be yours. Because of unbelief, we need a divine assistance. So if we're, if we're by, natural, uh, by nature unbelievers, we need help in faith. We need someone to get, cause us to have faith. Faith is not within us, naturally. Anyway, let me continue. There are many witnesses to the gospel. Therefore, it is frequently called to the testimony. Or, therefore, it is frequently called the testimony. There is a cloud of witnesses and miracles. Hebrews 2, verse 4. The ministers, apostles, and prophets are among them especially. Acts 10, verse 43. Acts 26, verse 16. Acts 5, verse 32. As are the saints. Isaiah 43, verse 10. But the Holy Ghost is the head of this grand jury. Hebrews 10, verse 15. 1 John 5, verse 6. He comes with this testimony and settles the heart and assurance of the gospel so that it may find firm ground and sure footing. As long as faith is wavering, comfort will be unstable. The house cannot be strong if the foundation is weak. The gospel is the foundation, and if that is firmly laid, the whole fabric of peace will stand strongly, able to bear out all storms and tempests. Bracket number two. The second question is concerning themselves and their interest in the gospel. For though a man knows clearly what that faith and holiness is, which gives him a real title to the promise, yet he may be unable to know his faith to be that faith. There are many things which often make true faith hardly discernible. Roman numeral number one, lowercase. Great imperfection. It is hard to know with certainty when a plant is newly put up above ground or what it is. A low faith has but little evidence. There is light in every grace to show itself. But as it is with some stars that are so small that they are scarcely seen, so also a man may have faith, yet not be able to say positively and preemptorily that he does believe. Roman numeral number two, lowercase. The similarity between false faith and true. A man may know in general what is requisite to the nature of gold, yet when he comes to apply his rules, he may be puzzled, because art can exactly imitate nature. Yea, a famous painter was deceived by a fly, which, though artificial, yet he thought it was natural. Roman numeral number three, lowercase. The conscience is not always a competent judge, because it may be clouded with fears and jealousies. Roman numeral 4, lowercase. Satan does often so snarl this question that the soul is not able to extricate itself, that, or pull itself out. Therefore, we need the help of the Spirit, whose office it is to be our comforter. And as conscience in its court is witness, advocate, and judge... So is the Spirit. He is a witness, giving evidence concerning the fact that this is done, 
In other words, that the man does believe. He is an advocate to plead the equity of his cause, and that, by the law of grace, he should live. He is the judge, by pronouncing sentence, applying the law of grace in a judicial way, and saying, the soul shall live. But all are comprised in the testimony, for it is a testimony clearing and determining the case. That there is such a testimony of the Spirit, as does evidence the truth and sincerity of grace, and consequently a personal interest in the promise, appears further by these arguments. First, the spirit of bondage and the spirit of adoption are opened to each other. Romans 8 verse 15. Now the thing wherein they are opposed is their proper working, the one causing fears and the other peace. Look then into the work of the spirit of bondage, and you will find it does not only enlighten the soul to know and apprehend in general wrath against sin, and to apprehend what sin is, but it also evidences to a man particularly that his ways are the ways of sin. It consequently works as a kind of preview of hell, a dreadful expectation of wrath upon himself, so that a man comes to conclude upon conviction I am a man who has transgressed, and I am the man who, unless salvation comes to me in Christ, shall be damned. And, as the spirit of bondage thus joins in the sentence of condemnation by stirring up, clearing, fixing, and strengthening the conscience, in like manner the spirit of adoption works with conscience in the sentence of absolution, reconciliation, and adoption. Secondly, if the Spirit is a comforter, which will not be questioned, it must witness the truth of our believing, and by that our interest in the promise. For until this is done, until a man is assured that his faith is strong, he cannot be satisfied in this question which now troubles him. Shall I be saved? Is mercy my portion? And there are three main steps to comfort. Roman numeral 1, lowercase. Salvation comes through Christ in the free promise, but here it yields no other comfort but this. It may be mine if I receive it. Roman numeral number two, lowercase. The heart goes out to take hold of salvation. This is a further step to comfort, and here the foundation is laid. But although this is sufficient to life and salvation in the end, yet it is not sufficient to peace and comfort at present. Roman numeral 3, lowercase. A man cannot be satisfied until he attains a third thing, which is this, the knowledge that he has rightly and savingly received salvation. If the knowledge of the true definition of faith and holiness were sufficient to give assurance to him that truly believes, that he does indeed truly believe, then none that are so qualified, and do reflect carefully upon themselves, can be certain or doubtful whether their faith is right or not. But now we see, oftentimes, that even men that have much grace and quick-sighted understandings are much in fears of their own estates, and have given themselves up as hypocrites, unsound, yea, dead, even damned men, read Psalm 88, and therefore see Haman as a sad instance of such a heavy condition. Grace lies so often hidden that they that seek it cannot find it in themselves. Consult that text. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the children of God, Romans 8, verse 16. 
Besides the stream of interpreters who give testimony to this testimony of the Spirit, let the place itself be considered. For in this text there are three things which come in as props to this truth. Roman numeral number one, lowercase. The Spirit witnesses with our spirits. Here are two distinct witnesses. Our spirits, that is, our conscience or understanding renewed, and God's Spirit. God keeps the course which he himself appointed, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses everything should be confirmed. Matthew 18, verse 16. Roman numeral number two, lowercase. The Spirit himself. Sometimes the graces and gifts of the Spirit are called the Spirit, as in John 1, verse 15. Acts 6, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32, Galatians 3, verse 2. But it is not to be so taken here. The Spirit in this place is the Holy Ghost himself, for so it is expressed, not the Spirit, but the Spirit himself. The graces of the Spirit are witnesses. As every effect has a witness of its cause, so God did not leave himself without witness to the heathen, but by his works did declare himself, Acts 14, verse 17. Christ said, his works bear witness of him, John 5, verse 36. But this is not all the testimony which the Spirit gives to the saints, but he does it himself, says the text. Roman numeral 3, lowercase. Our spirits make particular application with the Spirit. It is not just that the Spirit witnesses that those that believe are sons, as if it were only a testimony of the truth of the gospel, but rather the Spirit witnesses with our spirits that we, even we, are the sons of God. Consider also the context. The thing which the Apostle, for their comfort, would prove is that they shall live. Romans 8 verse 13. But how does he prove it? Because they are sons, verse 14, and that they are sons, he gives a twofold evidence. First, the spirit of adoption by which they cry, Abba, Father, in verse 15. But they might say, men may not be, or may not men be deceived and claim a child's place with God when he's actually a stranger. Therefore, he adds, secondly, the testimony of the spirit. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirits that we are the sons of God. It is as if he had said, you have a sure ground of assurance, not only your, for, for not only your own spirits, but God with them joins in testimony that you are children. But concerning this testimony, note that all the saints do not have it at least in such a measure as to settle the heart clearly in the persuasion that they believe and are children. Nor is the testimony of our own spirits alike in all. But as the graces are more evident and conspicuous, so also is the testimony more clearly seen. And herein differs the testimony of God's spirit and our spirit. Our spirits give testimony according to the measure, workings, and evidence of our graces. But the Spirit of God often gives less testimony to the best Christians, and not all have it, at least not in a satisfactory degree. It is a testimony which, for all the places it appears in the Word, may cease. Those that have it may later lack it, 
though it is true that once this testimony is obtained, although it may not actually and always abide, yet the efficacy of it should, so that it is weakness to doubt again because it is the voice of God, a judicial sentence. This testimony may be discerned from all fantastical or diabolical enthusiasms. Roman numeral one lowercase. It reveals itself in those that have it, as the light of the sun distinguishes itself from all other lights. He that has a full testimony knows it to be of God. You know him, for he dwells in you, or he dwells with you, and shall be in you. John 14, verse 17. And it must needs be so, otherwise the testimony would not be sufficient. But the question would still remain undecided concerning a man's condition. It is as much to be regarded who speaks as what is spoken. Though a man may hear a voice from heaven, or a voice from within himself, declaring and pronouncing his reconciliation and adoption, yet unless he knows it is of God, it will not satisfy. If a condemned man has news of his pardon, unless he knew it was the king's act, it would not quiet him. Roman numeral two lowercase. It is always according to the word. The witness of the Spirit and the Word is the same. There are two voices, or determinations, or testimonies of the Word, one concerning the way, the other concerning the end. The Word says, they that believe shall be saved. But then the question is, who believes? To this, the Word answers by describing what saving faith is, and so the rule gives sentence of that which is to be ruled by it. When the word and faith in the heart are brought together by examination, the word either accepts or rejects, reproves or disallows of that faith, and or as it is in itself true or false. When gold is brought to the touchstone, though the stone may indicate that it is true gold, yet the examiner may lack the skill to perceive this testimony. So it is in this case. The word is the law by which all are judged. But a judge is needed to open and apply the law to particular cases. The Spirit joins with the Word, not to give out another verdict, but that the Word is made more intelligible by the Spirit, not varied, but opened. The testimony is still the same, so that the Spirit never loses what the Word bind, or the Spirit never loses what the Word binds. Therefore, those that live in pride idleness, or any other way of sin, and pretend assurance of salvation given by the Spirit, are deceived. For if such a man is, uh, or for if a man is such as the word condemns, there is no absolution from God while he continues as such. Roman numeral three, lowercase. This testimony is holy, holy formally, originally, and effectively. It makes a man more holy, more humble, more contrite, more watchful, more zealous, and more thankful. The assurance which breeds vanity, contempt of ordinances, that's contempt of laws, neglect of duties and security and sin, is deceitful and abominable. Second, thus of the efficient cause of spiritual comfort. Now the matter of spiritual comfort follows. That which is comfortable must be such as can, in some measure, satisfy and fill the desire and appetite of the soul. For as long as desire is withheld from her object, 
there is unrest, or there is an unrest, an unquietness in the heart. There will be a whining and crying of the spirit, for there is pain and hunger and grief and want. Now as desire is an extension or reaching of the soul after something suitable, so it will not be satisfied until it possesses the thing it desires, or unless it has a hope and expectation of obtaining it. Therefore, the proper objects of spiritual comfort are number 1. Spiritual things given to us and received by us here. For example, the light of God's countenance, the quickenings of His Spirit, the subduing of lusts, success in our prayers or tastes of heaven. Number 2. Things promised to us. As in the former, desire is turned into joy and the accomplishment of desire becomes a tree of life. Proverbs 13, verse 12. So here it becomes hope, and this hope gives comfort. This comfort is the anchor of the soul, and the best cure of sorrow in the present lack of future things. We are saved by hope, Romans 8, verse 24. The main things of our life and happiness for eternity are ours at present only in the promise. Concerning these things, note that the promise gives as strong a comfort to faith as things which are present to the senses. Yea, greater even, for the things to come are greater, more permanent, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8-12, through 12, and more sure. In this way, faith makes them as such a comfort as if they were present, Hebrews 11, verse 1. The soul may retain the comfort of hope, yet lose the comfort of those things it has already. It may find the way sad, but is strengthened when it believes the end will be sweet. But if a man loses the life and comfort of hope, he loses the comfort of what he already has presently also. His way will be sad if he is afflicted about his end. Now, according to the strength of faith and hope's claim, comfort is advanced. When hope fluctuates and looks for eternal life only as possible or probable, then comfort is, or comfort also is unstable. And weak, but when it looks upon it as a certain future, then the heart has a full rest. Thus, having seen the nature and causes, let us come to the defects of comfort, or the defects of comfort, and may be lost. The tenure of grace and peace is not the same in point of comfort. We are but tenants at will, and may in a moment be turned out of a heaven upon earth into a hell upon earth. Comfort is not only of the being, but well-being of the saints. It is rather a reward than grace, and belongs rather to clarification than sanctification. Joy is not that which makes a Christian, but grace. It is the light of the sun, and not its warmth, that makes it daytime. This comfort may fail if God suspends his testimony, if he lets Satan into afflict, or if he hides himself and does not meet them in their approaches to him and in combats for him. I must cut myself short here, for I see the book swells bigger than I desire. Let this therefore suffice for the entrance into the business itself. The Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul Part 17, Chapter 35, The State and Degree of the Loss of Comfort of the Soul. Now I come to the sad state of the soul lacking the comforts of the Holy Ghost, 
God withdrawing himself in respect of that gracious effusion of his mercy and manifestation of his love to the soul, shutting up those sweet streams of refreshment which were wont to flow. Here I will speak of the case, chapters 35 through 37, and its cure, the latter half of chapter 37. The case and of a deserted and disconsolate soul requires us to consider, number one, nature, that's chapter 35, number two, degrees, chapter 35, effects, chapter 36, and number four, causes of it, chapter 37. First then, let us see what its nature is. It is an eminent and abiding uncomfortableness of heart towards God, or a loss of that comfort which the soul was accustomed to having in God. Number one, it is a loss of comfort in God. A man may have much unquietness and yet not be in this case. Unless the object of discomfort is God's displeasure or departure, it makes not for a deserted case. A man may be afflicted in his spirit many ways, yet God's habitual presence may continue. As the conscience of some sin may cause much sadness and mourning, either some sin stirring or some sin acted upon, much may afflict. But the trouble of reluctance or the sorrow of repentance are there and will be there where God is most present. Paul is a pattern in the first, Romans 7, verses 15 through 25, and David in the other, Psalm 51. The sins of others may disquiet. Rivers of tears run down my eyes because men keep not thy law, Psalm 119, verse 136. Lot, Ezra, and all that have most of God have most of these sorrows, and because these sorrows are not miseries, but mercies, there is much sweetness in this temper. The troubles of the churches may afflict in a way of compassion and sympathy. Yea, outward afflictions may pain the spirit for a time in a natural way, and the soul may mourn because of its deficiencies and poverty, lacking that completeness of holiness which it desires. Though present degrees of grace are sweet, yet because they are sweet, the soul is not contented, being in a state of want. It will be in motion until it attains its fullness, Philippians 3 verse 12. But desertion imports a loss of comfort in God. Number two. It is a loss of unusual comfort, or of usual comfort. As the former kind of desertions is a loss of usual quickenings, so this is a loss of the usual quietness. And as there are seasons in which God gives more of himself in a way of quickening than he will constantly continue to, or than he will constantly continue to, he gives comfort sometimes in such fullness as shall not always abide. Every day is not a feasting day. Paul was taken up into the third heaven, but he came down again. The sun does not always give shine and an equal luster. God sometimes give, gives coruscations of glory, but like lightnings, they shut in again. A father may occasionally send for his sons from school and make merry with them at home, but these playtimes do not come every day. They must go to school again and live under tutors and governors until they come to full age. God opens himself much at some times. Letter A. In special approaches of the soul to him. At these times a man sees and tastes such things that he is loath to depart. But these comforts, though they come from heaven, 
Yet like plants that are carried out of their native soil and climate, they may not keep their sweetness in a constant height. A man may warm himself at the fire and be refreshed, but this refreshment wears off again. Letter B. In times of great afflictions. These greatest com or the greatest comforts are usually found in sufferings. For God or for then God opens himself. Second Corinthians one verses three through five. The martyrs did shine like stars in the night of persecution, and abounded most in comfort when filled most with troubles. Letter C. In ordinances lively administered. Here so much is found that a man may say as the apostle, It is good to be here, Matthew 17, verse 4. Yea, as Jacob, this is none other but the house of God. This is the gate of heaven, Genesis 28, verse 17. Letter D. In times of abundant sorrow and melting of heart. In such cases, God often breaks in with sweet effusions of peace, as he did to Ephraim. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 through 20. Letter E. At the time of conversion, God often comes with extraordinary effort. Many come to Christ in their sins and go away renewed, afflicted and go away comforted, coming with hell in their souls and going away with the heaven, having a fullness of joys instead of a fullness of tears. I need not make any further instance. The case is clear that comfort may fail. Um, yet, unless a man loses that comfort which he ordinarily did enjoy, he is not deserted. Number three, it is an eminent loss. It is not every cloud that makes night, but when the air is full of darkness and when the sun has set. Number four, it is not a fit of uncomfortableness, but a state. An eclipse of the sun does not make it nighttime. He is not a poor man that has a momentary need, but he that lives constantly in need. Every cold blast makes not winter. Secondly, the degrees of this uncomfortable state are to be considered. There are some nights which are darker than others, and some winters colder than others, and there are degrees of God's withdrawing from the soul. The first degree, when his quieting presence is much abated. Number one, and not being as full as it had been. God seems not so friendly, but looks somewhat more strangely, so that the soul complains, as Jacob did, I see your father's countenance, that it is not towards me as before. Genesis 31, verse 5. When the soul comes to God, it does not find those enlivening and refreshing visions and tastes. The cup of consolation that was usually filled is now emptied. The heavens are not so clear, his hopes are not so full. His knowledge of his happiness is more obscured, and fears begin to overflow. The light of God's face is darkened, and the soul is troubled. Number two, in not being as frequent as it has been, the visits of the comforting spirit are more seldom. God holds off as if he were about to break off from the soul. It is a grief when a friend who often goes by us seldom greets us. And so it is heaviness when the soul complains, to use the words of Job in another sense. Lo, he goeth by me, and I see him not. He passeth on also, but I perceive him not. Job 9, verse 11. In times past, the soul had good news from heaven every day. But now she is like the wife who, when her husband is gone far from her, hears but seldom from him. Returns are not so quick at a great distance. 
God is so sparing in manifestations of kindness that the soul thinks it long. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Psalm 13, verse 1. Is his mercy clean, gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Psalm 77, verses 7 through 9. My soul fainteth for thy salvation. I hope in thy word, mine eyes fail for thy word. When wilt thou comfort me? Psalm 119, verses 81 through 82. Number three, it and not being as permanent as it had been. God comes and goes. The day of their peace is often overcast. The comforts which they or which did flow ebb again. The soul is grieved as much with God's sudden departure as delighted in his gracious presence. It does not have such constant health but as well only in fits. The soul that was now, or the soul that was as a dwelling place to her friend is but an end now. He whom she loves comes rather as a stranger and as a passenger than an inhabitant, so that here you may hear the prophet's complaint. O oh, the hope of Israel, the savior thereof in the time of trouble, why shouldst thou be a stranger in the land and as a wayfaring man that turneth aside to tarry for a night? Jeremiah 14, verse 8. Comfort comes like thin clouds that yield sweet showers, but are soon gone. The gourd, whose shade was sweet, soon withers. The heart has become like a cracked vessel, which, though it receives much, yet holds but little. The heart, or the waters of life, run out as fast as they come in. The second degree. The second degree of desertion and uncomfortableness is when there is much quickness, but no quietness. Grace lives, but peace dies. The soul is so happy that it seeks what it has lost, but unhappy in this, that it finds not what it seeks. It thirsts, but drinks not. It runs, but obtains not. Holiness is in flourish, but it is the winter of, com of comfort. David was full of holy affections, even when he was empty of consolation. When is the heart in a better state than when it calls, inquires, runs, weeps, fights, and cries after God? Yet in such a case, a man may lack all comfort. The richest ships may wander in the dark and be tossed in a storm. Sometimes a father will frown upon the best and dearest child. The most living Christian may lay himself out for dead, Psalm, verse 80, or Psalm chapter 88. Grace and peace are not linked in indissoluble society. These lovers may shake hands and part. And the more a man abounds in grace, the more grievous it is to lack the comfortable presence of God. A father's frown, and such a father's frown is bitter to so filial a spirit. Strangeness to strangers is not strange, but to lovers it is grievous. But it is a lesser evil in itself when God is with the soul and quickening it, though he does not comfort it, than when God leaves it in an uncomfortable deadness. Though the former is more bitter to sense, yet in reason the latter is worse, when comfort ceases and grace sleeps at once. The third degree. 
when neither comfort nor liveliness, but a plight of darkness and woeful deadness covers the soul. Then hope and love are both dampened, so that a man is as far from a holy and living state of heart as he is from comfort, neither joying nor desiring. But having fallen from the height of living and joyful conversation with God, he is like the prodigal, brought to another life to feed upon husks with swine instead of bread in his father's house. There are many who have had reviving tastes of Jesus Christ and did rejoice to see the streams of the well of life sweetly flowing and overflowing, abundantly filling the saints and themselves with comfort. But now the tree in the middle of their paradise is, to them, like the withered fig tree. The shadow and fruit of it ceases, and they are miserable in the loss of that which is the happiness of those that have it. And their misery is so much the greater because of how much they count it their loss. Is it not a sad thing to see a man so far declined that he can live without his life and rest out of his place, that place where he has had such peace and contentment? Oh, here is a heavy spectacle. A man who has lost his estate grieves. He who has lost his name or health grieves. But this man has lost his God, and yet he mourns not. He says, all is well. Alas, he's not himself. When the day breaks and the sun sends out her beams into this dark region, when a spirit of truth and life shall bring this wandering creature home again and cause him to be himself, then you shall see the man acting another part. Alas, what amazement will seize upon him? How will he melt who is now frozen? How will he be afflicted to see himself and his case, which now he lies as quiet as Peter in his chains? Acts 12, verse 6. Fourth degree. When God not only suspends his comfort, but afflicts the soul. Not only continuing the supply of living bread, but feeding them with the bread of sorrow and affliction, which he does in diverse ways. Number one, by rebukes of the Spirit. The Spirit of God comes sometimes in a way of displeasure to chide and rebuke the soul. David felt this, and it made him often cry and mourn as a child whom his father rebukes. This chiding is, letter A, a conviction of sin, not only of the sin itself, but also of the sinfulness. God sometimes come to, comes to set out a sin unto a man, and then it is very dreadful. Such a terror and astonishment sees upon him by a full sight and sense of sin, that if there was not a supporting hand of grace and mercy extended to him, he could not stand under it. Sin is a strange thing, and if God should uncover the visage of this monster and fully reveal the fearful nature of it, it would be a burden too heavy to bear. Now, therefore, when God conceals love and reveals guilt, it must needs be bitter. When a man sees his indictment but, not, or but has not his pardon, it must needs be grievous. Letter B. Opening the desert of sin and showing a man into that gulf which he has cast himself into. That now in justice and in the sentence of the law, he stands condemned to eternal death. When the grace of the promise is obscured and the justice of the law is presented in a lively manner, it will cause a man to fear much. Now, said God, see what I may do. I may cause all your welfare to pass away like a cloud and bring in a deluge of woes upon you. 
I might shut you from my presence by a, a decreed banishment and cast you into hell forever as a stone that is hurled from a sling. Such words as these are heavier than mountains. When the soul sees the vastness of eternity filled with death and sufferings and does not see the refuge of the gospel, this is a great shaking to the soul. Letter C. By holding the eye upon these sad things so that wherever a man turns, his sin is with him, and hell is before him. The cry of sin and the curse of the law are always in his ears. My sin is always before me, Psalm 51 verse 3. It was also Job's sad case that the sins which he thought he had been rid of so long ago returned upon him and cleaved to him as if they were his possession. Thou writest bitter things against me and makest me to possess the iniquities of my youth. Thou puttest my feet also into the stocks. Job 13 verses 26 through 27. This is a heavy thing when God continues in this way of displeasure, breaking the spirit with these grievous charges. Letter D. By menacing outward or inward troubles, as he did to David when he had sinned greatly against him. He told him what he would do, how he would follow him with evil forever, and that his posterity should rue his folly. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. And when he had numbered the people, 1 Chronicles 21, verses 1 through 17, what a severe way did God take! Now, temporary evils, especially spiritual, are often very grievous, when God shall say, I will shut up my peace and my comforts from you who are a rebel and an ungrateful wretch. You shall no more see my face as you have done. Others shall drink, but you shall thirst. Others shall rejoice, but you shall mourn. I will no longer meet you as I have done. I will spare your life, but I will not show you my favor all the rest of your days." You shall live dubiously and die anxiously. I say when these words are heard, what a heavy case this is. How did David even waste himself with grieving when God did estrange himself? Psalm 32, verses 3 through 4, and Psalm 51, verse 3. But when God shall menace not only this, but hell and eternal death, this is far more grievous. And this God does even do his own. He sets it on so strongly that he often makes their spirits to waste away and their strength to be consumed. David and Haman were drenched in these depths, and how grievous were their complaints. Number two, God also suspends his comforts by abandoning the soul. Letter A, into its own hands. The heart of man is the greatest tyrant and the cruelest monster against itself. It is more a devil than the devil. He who is given up unto an accusing spirit needs no furies to fulfill his troubles. It has cries, clamors, stripes, stings, wounds, and deaths. It will be law, witness, plaintiff, judge, executioner, chains, racks, and gibbets. He that is in such a case has a hell within him, for consider, bracket number one, the temper and nature of the soul. It is receptive of much evil and misery, and is very active, and this activity is improved to self-affliction, Roman numeral one, lowercase, by guilt, which is as a powder to the flames, or as the winds to the seas, which make them to rage and boil, Roman numeral number two, lowercase, 
by the weapons which the disquieted heart has against itself, an eternal God, and a just law. Roman numeral number three, lowercase. By unbelief, through which the soul is made naked to her own blows, a guilty conscience strikes the promise out of a man's hand and draws the sword to plunge it into the soul. It undermines all forts and batters down the former evidences of all comforts as if they were walls of paper. It cuts off all relief and represents God as unwilling to hearken to any reconciliation. It also has many abettors, which contributes strength to make this man more bloody. The temper of the body pours in an abundance of dark and black thoughts and passions and the censures of others who, by their cloudy aspects and rejecting carriages, do sharpen the sword in the hands of an unbelieving and accusing conscience, that it may make more ghastly wounds and draw out fuller streams of blood. Thus the soul, like the man that fell into the hands of thieves, is left half dead. Distracting and accusing thoughts are worse than robbers. A man may say of them what David said of Goliath's sword, There is none like that. 1 Samuel 21, verse 9. Here is a sore battle, when the soul, like Saul, falls upon its own sword. 1 Samuel 31, verse 4. Bracket number 2. The Power of God. God has given to conscience a commission to afflict. God has a hand in all things, working and ordering them. He can send hornets into the soul, even stinging thoughts and piercing fears. He rules much in men's spirits, and in these seas he raises storms at his pleasure. Though he works not despairing thoughts in his people, yet he orders the unbelief and sinfulness of men's heart this way or that way, while not being the cause of it. So he does in this case. Yea, he presents sin and wrath in such a way that the heart, being left to its own darkness and unbelief, cannot be anything but a cruel and active enemy against itself. And now, as the prophet said in that case, so it may be said to a man in this case, O thou sword of the Lord, how long will it be before thou be quiet? Put up thyself into thy scabbard, rest and be still. How can it be quiet, seeing the Lord hath given it a charge against Ascalon and against the seashore? There hath he appointed it. Jeremiah 47, verses 6 through 7. Letter B into Satan's hands. God may leave his people much to the will of Satan, as he did with Job. And Satan, out of envy of our happiness, enmity against God and hatred of us, is willing to utilize all his skill and power to afflict the saints, so that a man may here take up that complaint. His troops come together and raise up their way against me, and encamp round about my tabernacle. Job 19, verse 12. Fifth degree. When to all this he adds an accumulation of other miseries, such as, number one, the disfavor of the saints. This is a great cutting to a holy heart, for he construes their favor and disfavor to be the reflection of God's. And indeed, oftentimes God sets his children against such as he is displeased with, as a master of a family says to his household concerning a child which he will correct for much stubbornness. 
show him no countenance, eat not with him, keep not with him. So here God says, with such a one have not amity, fellowship, or familiarity. It was a great grief to Job, and he complains of it. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintances are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and, in, and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. I called my servant, and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth. My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of my own body. Yea, young children despise me. I arose, and they speak against me. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Job 19, verses 13 through 19. You see, sometimes how often even the nearest friends fall off with God, and when divine grace is clouded, nature itself is also clouded. Haman also found this evil added to all his evils. Thou hast put away mine acquaintance far from me. Thou hast made me an abomination to them. Psalm 88, verse 8. Number 2. The loss of worldly comforts, such as peace, liberty, and estate. This was Job's case. Now when the soul is bereft of all comforts from heaven and from earth, it is a heavy case. Number three, the loss of the means of grace. God may remove his candlestick and take away the showbread. The doors of his house may be shut, or a man may be imprisoned by sickness so that the failing of the clouds above and the springs beneath bread sore distress breed sore distress. Sixth degree. When all this is extended and continued so that a man complains not of days, but years of affliction, a man may lie long in this miserable plight like Paul and his company, to whom neither sun or stars appeared for many days. Acts 27 verse 20. Hence come those mournful sighs. Lord, how long how long will the Lord cast off forever? Will he be favorable no more? How many are the days of your servant? Psalm 119, verse 84, meaning when am I going to die? <laughs> I am afflicted and ready to die from my youth up. Psalm 88, verse 15. There may be much praying that God would break these dark clouds and shine upon the soul. A man may cry with Job, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. Job 23, verse 3. And with the church, a man may call after God, yet may complain. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, but I cannot see him. That I cannot see him. Verses 8 and 9. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Song of Solomon 5 verse 6. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Lamentations 3, verse 44. When I cry and lament, he shutteth out my prayer. Lamentations 3, verse 8. A man may seek him in the ordinances, yet not find him. Yea, his sorrow may increase. God may seem angry with his prayer. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry with the prayer of thy people? Psalm 80, verse 4. And the word may seem to be against him, 
and may make his wounds sorer, so that those words may well be taken up by this afflicted soul. If I go into the field, then behold the slain with the sword, and if I enter into the city, then behold them that are sick with famine. Hast thou utterly rejected Judah? Hath thy soul loathed Zion? Why hast thou smitten us, and there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, and there is no good, and for the time of healing, and behold, trouble. Jeremiah 14, verses 18 through 19. Chapter 36, The Effects and Consequences of the Loss of Comforts of the Soul In the next place, let us view the effects and consequences of God's withdrawing and leaving the soul in this uncomfortable case. The effects are various according to the, uh, the quality of the persons thus deserted, which are of two sorts, sleeping and awakened. First, for the sleeping Christian. When he falls from a comfortable enjoyment of God, as he is senseless in a great measure, so he is. Number one, careless. He sets not himself to regain his lost friend, but lies bound in chains of sloth and sleep, as it is supposed David did until Nathan came to him, to rouse him out of that slumbering state. It is strange to consider how far a living man may be overtaken with fits of deadness, and how he may be so infatuated that he may be robbed of his comfort as Samson was of his strength when he was asleep. Number two, declining in affection and vigor of a holy walking with God. He is now hardly drawn to him, and soon drawn from him. He comes unwillingly, and abides with him uncheerfully. He comes slowly, and goes quickly. Having lost his first love, he hangs the wing and flags and duties. Number three, he's apt to be drawn to evil. Having lost his comfort and former vigor, he is easily persuaded to start from God. God lies lower in his affection, which the bond of the soul, and, being cooled in love, he is more easily overcome. While the soul is delighted in God, it easily condemns all vain delights. But now it becomes a prey to Satan in his temptations. Solomon fell strangely when he fell from God. The heart will pitch upon something, and if it does not have its contentment in God, it will hunt for it in the world. Hence it is that may descend from heaven to earth, and fall from a glorious height of comfort in and from God to a worldly and sensual condition, feeding upon vanities and filling themselves with creature comforts, so that their life is but a diversion to present contentments. Now from these dull and sleeping persons, we come next to such as are awakened, to view what operation this mournful state has upon them. Among these there are different workings, evil and good. First of the evil effects or consequences. Number one, heartless complaint. This is found in some who, though they are sensible of their loss in a degree, yet are not sensible enough. Though they complain and grieve, yet their sorrows are not deep enough. They feel a burden upon their spirits, but they can bear it. The heart is affected, but not afflicted. Number two, a fruitless complaint. Some are of a whining temper, apt to fill the ears of all their friends with sad relations of their mournful case, but there is little else to be found besides complaints. The soul does not humble itself before God, contend in prayer, or strive by the ordinances and holy walking to find what it has lost. These men are like the sick man who lies grieving himself, but in no way seeks in earnest to help himself. 
or like Issachar crouching underneath his burdens, Genesis 49 verse 14. Such spirits are these, or such spirits as these are of a stubborn temper, and they have reason to expect such multiplied discomforts as shall force them to seek after God with more seriousness and strength. David stuck to his own way and did not endeavor to reconcile with God until night and day the hand of God was heavy upon him, so that moisture was turned into the drought of summer. Psalm 32 verse 4. Number three, great unquietness. In some, the apprehension of the loss of communion with God and the sight of his displeasure work to their height indeed. Yea, so far that it works a fever, or rather a frenzy in the soul, by bringing, letter A, hard thoughts of God, as if God were implacably incensed, and so departed, that he would never more return, or that he has forgotten to be gracious, and has shut up his mercy forever, so that there is no hope. He will not hear my prayer. He has passed a doom upon me, and it must stand." He is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, even that he does, and he performs the thing that is appointed for me. Therefore I am troubled at his presence, when I consider I am afraid of him, for God makes my heart soft, and the Almighty troubles me. Job 23, verses 13 through 16. Sadness and fear cloud the understanding, and cause monstrous apprehensions. Letter B. Hard thoughts of themselves. They reflect upon the past as on a course of hypocrisy, see the present as a state of death, and look to the future as without hope. My sins are so mighty that they will not be subdued, and so many that they will not be pardoned. God cannot show mercy to me, I shall surely die. I am accounted with them that go down into the pit, free among the dead like the slain that lie in the grave, whom thou rememberest no more, and they are cut off from thine hand. Psalm 88, verses 4-5 through five. Thou hast removed my soul far from peace, and I forgot prosperity. And I said, My strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Lamentations 3, verses 17-18 through 18. Letter C. Dreadful passions, such as tremblings and shakings. Fear came upon me, and trembling which made all my bones to shake. Job 4, verse 14. The hair of my head stood up. Verse 15. Mark me and be astonished when I remember I am afraid, and trembling taketh hold of my flesh. Job 21, verses 5 through 6. Sometimes also roarings are heard from these men. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. Psalm 32, verse 3. My sighing cometh before I eat, and my roarings are poured out like waters. Job 3, verse 24. Yea, so great is the anguish that oftentimes the body is wasted. I am as a man that hath no strength, Psalm 88, verse 4. Yea, sometimes they are tired and weary of themselves and of life. My soul is weary of my life, Job 10, verse 1. Wherefore is life given to him that is in misery, and light unto the bitter in soul, which long for death, but it cometh not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, which rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave? Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God hath hedged up? Job 3, verses 20 through 23. In a word, they think they can never complain enough. 
They account their misery beyond all words. Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balance together. For my words are swallowed up, or I lack words to express my grief. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Job 6, 6 um, excuse me, Job 6, verses 2 through 4. And when the soul has exceeded all eloquence and passed almost all human bounds of language and expression, it is not satisfied, but thinks it, fail, it falls, exceeding short of uttering her misery. My, sto uh, my stroke is heavier than my groaning. Job 23, verse 2. But all this is not a right carriage of the spirit. Such passions would befit such as have a God without mercy, and distress without a promise, and without a redeemer. Faith is suspended when these clamors are heard, and the soul forgets the freeness and fullness of grace when it is thus transported out of itself and from its hopes. Secondly, the good effects of such uncomfortable eclipses of God's favor and presence follow, which are, number one, sorrow great sorrow. Thou hidest thy face, and I was troubled. Psalm 30, verse 7. The heart should not, yea, cannot rest without God if it is in due temper. His absence is worthy to be lamented, whose presence is most worthy to be prized. Number two, longing desires for God's gracious return. The soul thinks delays grievous. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. Proverbs 13, verse 12. The church said she was sick of love, Song of Solomon 5, verse 8. The heart that has a sense, or the heart that has had a sense of God's sweet presence cannot be satisfied without him, but counts all things nothing till it regains him who is to her as the sun to the world, and the soul to the body. Number three, repentance and humbling of the soul. It seeks what unhappy and accursed things have raised this cloud between God and her, and falls down at his feet, confessing, weeping, and begging his favor in Jesus Christ, willingly grieved and ashamed. It counts not this sorrow bitterness, but has some sweetness in it. Number four, subjection to all conditions of agreement. It says, Lord, impose, demand whatever you will. I count nothing too dear for you, and will you deny myself for you? If my heart draws back, draw it on to you. As far as I am able to sacrifice myself to you, I do do it. Thus the soul sets itself toward God, inquires for him in all means, and will not be put off. It falls not by despair, nor sleeps in sloth, but faith holds up hope and hope keeps up endeavors, and it cannot be quiet without God. There are two main causes of restlessness of the soul without God, the condition of the subject and the quality of the object. First, the condition of the subject. It is, number one, tender. The soul, especially in a believer when he is in a living state, is very sensible of any evil, especially of the greatest evil. A man's sorrow is as his side is. Therefore, when he sees God and has a knowledge of him in his excellency, the loss of him is grievous. All evils of the body are but as the rending of the garment, 
but grief in the soul is as a tearing of the flesh. A wounded spirit, who can bear? Proverbs 18, verse 14. Outward evils are but as the breaking of the outworks. All sense in the body is from the soul. Therefore, the soul is by necessity most sensible. Number two, it is spiritual. If the body is in misery, external things may help. In sickness, physic, and want, relief. In famine, bread. But when the soul is in distress, all the world is like but a great cipher. It amounts to nothing. Heaven and earth are but as a shadow. Nothing but God can quiet. As the body is not satisfied with spiritual things, so the soul is not contented with corporal things. There must be a fitness in the object, else it moves not. The ear is not pleased with light and colors, nor the eye with sounds. The soul, therefore, being spiritual, must meet with that which is spiritual and proper for it, or it is not contented. Every living creature has an appetite and sense carried to some things, and out of that compass it has no quiet. You shall never satisfy a beast with anything but with pastures, and such things as it desires. So must a man have other things, things of higher worth, suitable to his nature. And for a spiritual man, whose soul is illuminated and drawn out to higher and more spiritual things, you cannot quiet him with a thousand worlds, if there is no interest in Christ or in the favor of God. The spiritual man is carried to things spiritual, as the natural man is to things natural. And as a natural man cannot be quieted without natural accommodations and enjoyment of such things as suit him, so the spiritual man cannot have rest without his spiritual treasure. Number three, the soul has pitched itself upon God by faith and hope. It has delegated itself to him for eternity and in the business of life and death. Now, if a man were resting over a deep and swift torrent, and when he is over these depths, he feels the bridge cracking and sinking, it must let in a sea of fears and amazement upon him. And how can it be that when a man sees the vastness of eternity, the greatness of sin, and the terrors of the wrath that burns like fire, and has in his agony thrown himself upon God in Christ, and now is doubtful whether Christ will own him, or take any care of him, I say, how can it be, but that he should be in great distress at such a time when God withdraws his comforts, and everything that may afflict stands forth in greatest strength. Now death is death, and sin is sin, and the soul feels the weight of every load. Comfort lightens all burdens, and when Christ is present, all evils vanish and discouragements scatter as a mist. But when that is gone, then those evils gather like clouds of fire and blood over the soul, and those miseries which previously were as conquered men do rise up with renewed strength. And what a sad time this is, when the soul sees her danger and not her refuge, her wounds but not her cure. Nay, to see him that is her only trust, not only to be with her but against her. The soul has chosen him as her chief treasure, and therefore can be no more without him than without herself. Number four. The soul has had hopes of God's favor. 
Time has been when it saw itself in the arms of Christ, and walked with some assurance that it had been a friend in heaven. And therefore, seeing now her hopes to wither, and those golden days to pass as a pleasant dream, it cannot but be much affected. In the end, this shall be the bitterness and anguish of unsound hearts, who, after they have fed their souls with hope and run out their days in a paradise of imaginary happiness, find that when they come to die, all those joys and all that confidence will spread themselves like a vapor, and the lean cows to eat up the fat with sorrow and everlasting perdition coming instead of the joy and salvation which they looked for. Oh, who can utter this misery? A man hurled from a pinnacle of high and glorious hopes into a depth of eternal woe. By this we may guess what it is for a deserted soul that has reckoned long upon high things, and now sees such a change that it is forced to count itself deceived, and to exchange its living hopes for killing fears, and whereas he thought himself a child, to be cast forth as a stranger, yea, as an enemy. Number 5. It has had much in communion with God in Christ. Time was when the man was kindly used, when God conversed with him as a man with his friend, when he invited him often and entertained him in love, pouring in much of heaven upon him. But now to see God estranging himself, yea, frowning, chiding, and arming against him, cannot be a cutting to his soul. David, having lost the liberties of the ordinances, which were better than his kingdom to him, lies down in heaviness, as one taught by the experience of his former happiness, the deeper to lament his present misery. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul in me, for I had gone with the multitude. I have gone with them to the house of God, with the vo voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept holy day. Psalm 42, verse 4. And this was the affliction of the church, that she lost him in whose presence she had received such abundant comfort. Song of Solomon 5, verses 6 through 9. The more the soul has had of God, the more bitter is her loss of him. Secondly, the object is such that if you weigh it, you shall see that a man cannot be at rest when God holds back and leaves him in this doleful case. Consider first the quality of the object. There are three things in God which cause the wound of an afflicted spirit to bleed much. Number one, goodness. Because God is good, therefore his disfavor is a great affliction. In such a day this sweet balm in the heart will turn into a sharp corrosive, and out of this sea of comfort will draw bitter waters. This golden mine, which is a rich treasure unto others, holds that which the heart turns into iron rods and sharp swords to wound itself. For if it apprehends his goodness to be his kindness and gracious disposition to pity and mercy, then it reasons heavily, O oh, unhappy wretch, that there should be so sweet a fountain, and I should not drink of it. That stream should flow towards thousands, and none to me. I envy not others' happiness, but I lament my own misery." that I should die in the midst of life and perish in the midst of salvation. God is so good, so ready to show mercy, that surely he is highly incensed against me, who seeks, calls, and cries, yet am not relieved. If my wickedness were not very great, 
yea, if I were in his heart at all, surely he that is so good in himself and unto thousands would not thus reject me. I am tossed night and day, and carry a hell in my soul continually, and if I were not as an enemy in his eye, if I were a child, his bowels would not hold, and I would surely be received. Who can reckon the heavy conclusions which the heart will draw against itself? It is so disposed to its own hurt that it will afflict itself not only against faith but against reason, turning the sun into darkness and the moon into blood, fetching misery out of mercy and hell out of heaven. Or if the goodness of God is taken for his holiness and perfection, and they reason thus, Surely I am very evil whom goodness rejects. If I had any spark of good in me, God would not cast me off. But certainly he sees my abundant naughtiness, therefore he sets himself against me. Thus in sundry ways the goodness of God makes the hiding of his face and the manifestation of his displeasure to be very grievous. Number two, greatness. When a man apprehends the majesty of God, the fear of his disfavor falls heavily upon him. Who knoweth the power of thine anger? Even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. Psalm 90, verse 11. The favor of a man of power is of much worth, and there is power in his wrath. The wrath of a king is as the roaring of a lion, but his favor is as dew upon the grass. Proverbs 19, verse 12. The wrath of the God of power is as terrible as thunder, and as the beasts fall down astonished at the roaring lion, so the soul is overwhelmed when such glorious majesty is incensed. In God there is a twofold power, letter A, a power first of authority, which is that power by which he dispenses all things, as having all in his hand as absolute Lord and Sovereign. And what a misery is this, that he that has eternal life and death, heaven and hell in his power, should seem to be against a man. This is the fullness of all evil, when he, upon whose will all things depend, becomes one's enemy. The loss of, of a particular comfort and contentment is great, but how much worse is the loss of all. It, also, or it is also a power of authority by which he judges all. God, being the supreme Lord, holds this royalty, that all men and angels are accountable to him in all things. Now to apprehend that the judge of all the world will not show mercy, but will proceed in strictness of justice, especially when a man knows that he is guilty many, in many ways, and that God is privy to all his sins, must be a sore shaking to the soul. Though all friends and ministers, yea, though all angels come into comfort, yet it will not satisfy, because they are but subjects. God is supreme, and his word shall stand. If you tell a poor trembling prisoner who is going to the bar for his life that he needs not fear, and that he shall surely escape, he will be apt to answer you, Alas, unless the judge says so, all that you say will not profit me. So will a poor afflicted soul think when others come to tell him, Surely your case is good, and doubtless you will find mercy, and heaven will be your portion. He will reply, Oh, that God would say this to me. Unless this is my sentence at his bar, your comforts are but the sounding brass, or as a tinkling cymbal. Letter B. Secondly, there is a power of ability. 
by which God is able to work what he wills and to execute his own purposes. If he pronounces sentence from the throne of judgment, there is no way to shun it. If in the word of a king is power, Ecclesiastes 8 verse 4, how much more in the word of the Almighty? What makes anything dreadful but its power? All the power in the creature is but derived from him and limited by him, but his power has no bounds but his will. Therefore, when the soul is not only in doubt of his good will, but in fear of his ill will, how can it have any rest? Number three, eternity. God abides forever. This makes his favor and displeasure more considerable. We reckon the loss of a perpetuity to be a great loss in our estates, but what is it to lose God forever? And not only to lose him, but to bear his displeasure who is eternal. Eternity! Oh, eternity! How does this swallow up the soul in a day of fears? This sets on all other terrible things with a redoubled strength, and causes them to fall with weight more heavy than mountains upon the spirit. He that hath all power and lives forever has forsaken me. Such a thought as this batters the soul as a wall of paper before a cannon. Consider also the relation in which God stands to a believer. He is to them in the nearest and dearest relation, a friend, father, and husband. God is all these perfectly, the closest and most active friend, the kindest and most tender father, the sweetest and most loving husband. The loss, therefore, of such a one is grievous, yea, the loss of any one of these is great. If a child loses a tender-hearted father, or a friend, a free-hearted friend, or a wife, a kind-hearted husband, but if one loses a friend, a father, and a husband all at once, this is very grievous. And when the soul is deserted, it apprehends itself to lose all these, yea, the best friend, father, and husband, yea, her only friend, father, and husband. No wonder it takes up Jeremiah's sad complaint. When I would comfort myself against sorrow, my heart is faint within me. Jeremiah 8 verse 18. Nothing can heal but that which made the wound. Next, consider the operation of God. He has not only put into the heart which he renews a longing and restless desire after him, but he quickens this desire by a sense of mercy and by manifestation of his greatness and goodness that the soul may be carried with incessant reachings after him. He is then drawing the soul towards him when he seems to be departing. And how can that man rest whom heaven is drawing? God's end in afflicting the soul is not its pain, that it may waste itself in sighs and groans, but that it may pursue him with more eagerness. He is secretly and strongly working in the darkest night of spiritual sadness to a more full and comfortable conjunction and communion with his people. Therefore, it is that they seek and run to and fro to find him, because God draws them by his power. When David was in the desert, he followed hard after God. But what set his soul in that constant motion? Thy right hand upholdeth me. Psalm 63, verse 8. 
Let this suffice for the effects and consequences of God's hiding his face and cutting off the comforts which the soul was accustomed to enjoy in him. Case and Cure of a Deserted Soul, Chapter 37 The Causes and Cure of the Sad Condition Having seen what a woeful case a man is in when God withdraws, let us now weigh the cause for which God deals thus with his people. The first cause. To put a difference between heaven and earth. God is wont to fit his actions to times and seasons. Israel was a child as well as we, yea, the firstborn. Yet that church had not so much of him as the churches of the Christians. It was not a time for fullness. While the church was in her infancy, God dealt with them as with children in minority. He gave them much of the world and less of heaven. The spirit of adoption was poured out more fully when the church was grown more full. And God reserved much until the Gentiles were called, so that when his guests were more fully met, he might set out more abundance of his provision. So God will keep the rich store of consistent and abiding comforts till the great day, so that when all the family shall come together, he may pour out the fullness of his hidden treasures upon them. We are now but in the way, and it is best fit that the best should come last. We are but yet in the morning of the day. The feast is yet to come. In the meantime, a running banquet, a breakfast, and a taste shall suffice to stay the stomach until the time comes when the king of saints, with all his friends, shall sit down together at the royal feast. If you send your son to travel, you give him less than his inheritance, and you will send him forth by sea and land for your ends. So God has sent you abroad. You are but travelers. Therefore, you must not think it strange if you meet with storms and weary days, and if you have not so a constant presence with God with you. The difference between this life and the next is not so much in the kinds of comfort as in the degrees and continuance of them. This life has such a presence of God as brings with it a kind of absence. We know this, that while we are present in the body, we are absent from the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 6. This life is but our seed time of comfort, Psalm 97, verse 11, and the seed will have a time to be out of our hands, use and sight, till the harvest comes. Now is a working time, and the time of fight. Servants and soldiers must not expect a settled rest until their service is done and the wars cease. There remains a rest for the people of God, Hebrews 4, verse 9. All the saints that have gone before us have found ill days and hard times. Yea, Jesus Christ himself, when his hour came that he should be glorified, had trouble in the world. Yea, he drank of this cup which we have in hand. This makes heaven sweeter and puts the soul upon more longings for it, because there it knows it shall not fear nor sorrow any more. Constant joys in such a condition as this in the world suit not more than constant feastings in times of heaviness. We are freed from the power of sin, but in part, so are we but in part freed from afflictions. And it is probable, unless grace was more abundant, that a constant peace would have ill consequences. Paul was tempted after his exaltation, that he might not be exalted. Comfort belongs not to sanctification, but glorification. Therefore, the fullness of it is kept until we are set in glory. Comfort is the reward of holiness. Therefore, the perfection and stability of it is kept until that time when holiness shall be perfected. 
and the perfection both of grace and peace is deferred, so that when Christ shall appear in glory, this may set out the day. When Christ came in the flesh, God poured out much of his Spirit at his ascension, and will pour it gloriously when all shall be consummated. Then Christ shall shine among all his saints in the fullness of their perfections, as the sun attended with all the stars in their brightest glory. Until that time, while you are children under tuition, and at school, you will meet with frowns as well as smiles, and correction days as well as play days, and it is well that the day is coming that has no night, and joy that has no sorrow with it. The second cause, in the judgment of the world. God could send out his saints as stars in glory, that all eyes might gaze upon them, but he will not. All things are in a mystery and hidden to the world. The graces of the saints lie hidden under many infirmities, and the comforts of the saints under many sorrows, in just judgment upon the world. God is wise and knows how to fit the same things for many ends. Christ came in a poor estate, and his glory and majesty were covered with a cloud and mantle of a mean exterior. And why was this? It is true it was for satisfaction of justice, for the sin of his people, but it was also in judgment to the world. He was a precious one, yet because he came not in state and pomp, he was a stone refused by the builders, and so a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. First Peter, First Peter 2, 7 and 8. <clears throat> Excuse me. And because the gospel came not with human dress and external ornament, the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. God has not stooped to sense in the matters of heaven as he has in the matters of the world. He would not send unto men any from the dead, nor shall we walk among men with shining robes of heavenly glory. The things of this life are seen and tasted, but spiritual things are conveyed most in a spiritual way. If Adam had continued in his integrity, God would have manifested himself to the world as a man to his friend. And not only faith and reason, but the senses also should have been blessed in communion with God. But now he so disposes of all things, that even his people walk by faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 7. He will not give such a sensible demonstration of his bounty to the world, in order that it may justly perish in its wickedness. If they would not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe the gospel. The world is led by sense. Though the scriptures testify of the excellency of redemption and adoption, and of the great happiness of the saints, yet they foolishly cast away faith and the word and run to sense. And finding the heirs of glory to be often sad, beholding not their comforts, but their sorrows, they conclude that the way is worthless, and that religion is but a sour grape, bitter waters, and is a way of the desert. The third cause, to establish them in more full comfort. There was darkness before the light of the world. After the strong wind which rent the mountains and break rocks, came the still voice in which God was, 1 Kings 19, verses 11 and 12. And as God often sends great comfort before great afflictions in the world, Christ was transfigured on the mount before his great agony in the garden, so he comforts, or so he often promises affliction of the soul before great comforts. 
and the soul is settled more afterwards, even as the tree is more firmly rooted by being blown by the winds. It is God's method to bring first to Egypt, through the sea in the wilderness, and then to Canaan. The apostle prayed that they may be straightened and established. But when? After you have suffered a while. 1 Peter 5 verse 10. When the soul has passed through straits and has seen the wonders of the Lord in the depths, it is advantaged much to further establishment. Number one, because that comfort and evidence which comes so directly from God is the strongest. When a man has been taken off from all his foundations and God has appeared unto him in the desert, it is a strong demonstration of his love and wins the heart too much love and strong confidence. This is likened to a friend who is offended and has us or has us at an advantage, so that he may justice or he may injustice undo us, but instead spares us. And not only so, but is as Esau to Jacob, turning wrath into love and anger into compassionate kindness. This much knits us to him to love him and cleave to him as a good and fast friend indeed. Number two. God gives much proof and evidence of the truth of grace which he has wrought in them when he makes them see that they had hearts that could love him even when it was doubtful to them whether he loved them. When the truth of grace is evident clearly, it brings much comfort. And what greater evidence of an upright heart is there than to follow God when he seems to flee away, to love him when he seems to abhor and hate them, to weep upon him in love when he seems armed with weapons of death, and to pour out the soul to him when he seems to be pouring down fire and brimstone upon them. Number three, it gives hope that if dark clouds do arise, yet they shall be scattered again. The sense of former troubles may help to conclude that such depths are passable, and the soul will be apt to say, there is hope concerning this. Experience of mercy is a great help to faith, and holds up the soul that it will not fall so flat and lie so long under discouragements again. It will help and furnish the heart to pray much, because God has been entreated in times such as this before. And to say as the apostle, having delivered us from so great a death, in him we trust that he will yet deliver us. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 10. Number four, it works more closing with Christ. The death of comfort occasions a greater life and strength towards Christ, both in the desire of him and the dependence upon him. And for this cause, God shakes the soul with earthquakes, that it may stand more firmly upon its true basis and foundation. That which at first brings the soul to Christ is his worth and our need, and the more we see ourselves necessitous, the more our hearts gather in to Christ." The soul must have some rest, and if it finds none within or without, it is carried to Christ, as Noah's dove to the ark. That which is the first cord to draw him has also a strength to bind to him. Therefore God gives his people sad visions of sin and wrath, that by being shaken they may root themselves more in Christ. This was God's great aim to set up his son as the hope and help of his people, and as that glorious means by which he may diffuse the beams of his mercy and love upon men. And he loves to see the saints advancing him by flying to him and abiding in him. And the more they go forth to Christ and seek the Father in the Son, the more they are blessed. 
Christ is the rock of the saints, and when they are knit to it, they stand fast. The nearer they are to Christ, the nearer they are to all happiness. God will not look friendly upon the soul except through Christ. He will not pour out the spirit of comfort, but through him. And as comfort comes by coming, so the more often the soul comes, and the more it converses with Christ and rests upon him, the more comfort it will find at last. Christ will tell you many secrets and open his Father's bosom to you when you stick close to him. And this advantage comes by desertions, that the soul is so frightened by those storms which it has met with that it is afraid to be any more out of its harbor, but seeks to dwell under the wing of Christ and to keep closer to him than ever it did before. And so this affliction brings forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness in them which are exercised thereby. Hebrews 12, verse 11. The fourth cause. The correcting and healing of some evil in his people. He does it for their profit that they may be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews 12, verse 10. There are many things in the saints which are very repugnant to that filial state in which they are set by grace. And it, it is no wonder if God takes such courses wherein he seems not to be a father to them that are not as children to him. I will instance some particular evils which God will not bear with, but will visit his people with this and with other rods. Number one, deadness and dullness of heart. Sometimes living men are in a lifeless state. Their hearts are so benumbed that they seem to lie among the dead. The former vigor and activity of their grace is gone, and they have become barren and unfruitful. Now, when a patient is in a lethargy or apoplexy, physicians use strong and sharp medicines. In like manner, God casts the soul into a fever to get off this stupidity. He hangs their souls over the mouth of hell and makes them drink of that cup of red wine, the dregs whereof the wicked of the earth shall wring out and drink, Psalm 75, verse 8, that by this strong potion he may quicken their dull and sleepy spirits. Deadness is such a state in which a man is neither receptive nor active, neither fit to receive good or to do good, and such a case is not tolerable, for in this God's ends are stopped. He calls out his people to be vessels to receive mercy and to hold forth his name, but he that is dead can do neither. Nature itself loves not a dead thing. It is both unuseful and uncomely, for where life fails there is corruption, as in the body a mortified member putrefies not only itself, but others. Therefore, as a man uses all means to recover the life and spirits in his body, so God does with his people. David lay in a slumbering drowsiness a long time, but at last, when he lay like Jonah, sleeping by the sides of the ship, he sent a storm into his soul to awaken him. Then he revived like another man. Number two. Fearlessness of God. This is a temper to which the saints are apt to grow. 
Children are wont to grow saucy, presumptuously impudent, and irreverent until the father's frown and majestic austerity takes down their spirit. God will not be carelessly dealt with, though he allows us confidence and holy boldness in approaching and conversing with him. Yet he expects a due sense of his majesty and greatness. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. Though he is a father, yet he is also a terrible, holy, and almighty God. Therefore, to correct the sinful boldness of his people, and to cause them to stand in awe of him, he sometimes shuts in his favor, and keeps state by concealing himself. The Persian kings shunned familiarity, and were seldom seen that they might be more honored. The fear of God is one of the main pillars of the throne. And so far as he is not our fear, he is not our God. Therefore, he has always shown himself in his power and greatness unto men. When he came to give the law, he came in great majesty with the blackness and darkness in and tempest and sounds of the trumpets, and so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 19 and 21. Yea, and in the gospel it was foretold that God would show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be as unto darkness, and the moon be as blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Joel 2, verses 30 and 31. When he came to proclaim peace to the Gentiles, he came with great terror and judgment on the Jews, and struck off the natural branch that the Gentiles might not be high-minded, but fear. Romans 11, verse 20. And in particular persons he so works, by intermixtures of frowns and favors, majesty and mercy, so that they may learn to walk as those churches did, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost. Acts 9, verse 31. It is not a servile fear or a fear of discouragement which God expects, but a fear of reverence, a fear intermixed and tempered with love. There is a great difference in fears. A man fears a beast and runs from it. Another fears an enemy, but hates him. But a child fears his father, yet loves him. Yea, therefore he fears because he loves. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness. Hosea 3, verse 5. Number 3. Slightness of heart. There is a certain wantonness and trifling disposition in the heart that men are apt to be superficial and imperfect in their ways, and this God visits upon them. Letter A. Dallying with sin. They will be playing with snares and baits and allow a secret liberty in the heart to sin, conniving and winkling at, or winking at many workings of it and not setting upon mortification with earnest endeavors. Though they are convinced, yet they are not persuaded to arise with all their might against the Lord's enemies, but do his work negligently, which is an accursed thing, and for this cause God sets them upon sore straits.
The Israelites should have done the work perfectly when they were commanded to root out the Canaanites, but because they were slack and did it but by halves, therefore God made them as a scourge, as briars and thorns, to always be an affliction to them. When you are pressed to fight for Christ and have taken up arms against the rebels in your hearts, if you fight not with all your strength and do not pursue the victory to the utmost, will you find your enemies dead before you? God may give you into their hands and lead you into captivity and to hold you in chains that will eat into your souls and may, in this distress, stand afar off as one that knows you not. Letter B. Dallying with duties. Men do them as if they did them not, without heart, and in a loose, lazy, formal, and lifeless manner, thinks Striper in concert. Uh, and when there is such idleness, negligence, and indisposedness, God comes in a way of anger to whip up the slothful and unfaithful spirit. Duties of godliness are not only a debt to God, but a reward to us. Therefore, in slightness, there is not only unfaithfulness, but unthankfulness also. Both the majesty and mercy of God are despised. And can God be well pleased with such things? Remember the wise man's counsel. Whatsoever thine hand findeth to do, do it with all thy might. Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10. You are in an evil frame of heart when you can do the weighty things of God with slightness. And because you serve God so, he therefore comes with a kind of expulsion and banishment and throws you out of his sight so that you may see what it is to dally with God. Letter C. Dallying with ordinances by slight and careless attendance upon them. God comes in a way of gracious condescension and stoops down with offers of grace and mercy to poor dust, setting before them Jesus Christ, the most precious treasure of heaven, and faith and calling them to a near conjunction and communion with himself by holding forth precious promises of life. But what is the carriage of the soul? It neither minds these nor vouchsafes God in all his goodness so much as a look or if it is affected, yet but a little. It makes no great haste, nor uses much solicitousness or pains about the matter, but treats it as if the things were of no great importance. It is a very moderate and easy in making towards them, neither that high hand that holds them forth, nor that blood that bought them, nor that word that is in them works much, but all is slighted. Therefore God comes in the breach of these high things to vindicate them from our contempt. He teaches the soul by the sense of misery to value mercy, and by the fear of hell to prize Christ, and to be more serious in the ordinances as means of that good which they have learned to esteem by their present lack of it. The apostles' rule is to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2 verse 12. Salvation is a tender business, and of great importance, and therefore it will not be dallied with. What think you? Shall God set that before you which is better than the world for you to abuse? You yourselves take away the bread when the child plays with it, and shall the bread of life be slighted? 
Shall God stand waiting upon you with call after call and with gracious offers and have you dally with him? Hence is that black cloud which now darkens the heavens over you. You have grown wanton, and unless the gospel comes dressed in a way which pleases you, you slight it. Therefore God puts you into straits, and they, you, will come with a stomach and in earnest. Number four, living too much upon the creature. Question, when is that? Answer number one, when it takes up so much of a man's time, strength, thoughts, affections, or spirits, that he is unfit for God. When the soul is sick with a surfeit of the world, drunk with cares, fears, and delights, so that the heart is stolen away, and an indisposedness toward God has grown upon the soul. This was Solomon's case until God fetched him by embittering his ways to him. The world has allowed us as an inn in our travels, but not for our home. To be a staff in our hand, but not a throne in our hearts. God rains down wrath and bitterness up in our spirits to wean us from the world, thrusting out Hagar to give Sarah a more full possession. Answer number two. When a man cannot be without the world. When it gains so much in our opinion and affection that we think there is not life of subsistence without it. This is that for which God comes and takes off the soul with a storm, and with violence rescues the poor captive that was held in chains, and makes him to see of how little use these things are in an evil day. Like June 2015. When the soul falls to adulterous leagues with the world in such a way that they are so conjoined that it lives and dies with the world, God brings this bill of divorce and turns off as it were, the disloyal soul to her miserable lovers, that it may see the folly and wickedness of its way. Answer number three. When a man can live without Christ. The pleasantness and abundance of earthly contentments have so bewitched him that he becomes like a prince that has such fullness that he thinks he can reign with Christ, saying in his heart, We are lords, we will come no more unto thee. Jeremiah 2 verse 31. Oh, what unworthy carriage is this? What? Is Christ shut out that the world may reign? Expect God saying and doing to you as he did to them. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me. Days without number. Thou shalt go forth with thine hands and upon thine head. For the Lord hath rejected thy confidences, and thou shalt not prosper in them. Jeremiah 2, verses 32 and 37. While the sun shines and the sea is calm, you may sport yourselves in the deep. But when the storm comes, then the harbor will be precious. God will teach you that your life is in Christ, and in a day of fears and affrightments of soul, you will say, None but Christ! None but Christ! God will bring all enemies of Christ under his feet. And if there is a treacherous disposition, like Joab exalting Adonijah into the throne of David, God will bring it down. Christ must have his own place. The throne must not be given to another. Think the throne of your heart is, is preached in most churches. 
If you set so up the world that you count it happiness and seek it more than Christ and are more careful to leave this than Christ unto your children, God will arm himself against you to subdue this treacherous conspiracy and rebellion against his anointed. Number five, intractableness and stiffness of heart. This is another cause of the clouding of our comfort. God deals with the heart by cords of mercies and by bonds of affliction, but mercies move not and afflictions prevail not. Therefore, God takes another course, as physicians do by applying sharper cures when gentle means profit not. God will not lose any whom he has called. Therefore, if they are stubborn and stand like rocks against all ordinary means, he will come upon the tenderest part and use the sharpest way. And when he comes in storms and in clouds, who can abide it? His rebukes are more terrible than thunder. The spirit of a man may sustain his infirmities, but a wounded spirit, who can bear? Proverbs 18, verse 14. Now the soul is hard set, and comes upon her knees to submit herself, and melts like wax, and yields to anything. It sees an absolute necessity of agreement with God, when it is beleaguered with such trouble on every side. David had enough upon him to have humbled him, but his heart was strong until God put the cup of trembling into his hand, and this wrought so, that it fetched up all and brought the man in frame. Just a quick note, this is not the modern prosperity gospel church. This is not the word of faith gospel, okay? Listen carefully. Clay is easily molded, but marble must have many blows. The sunbeams will melt the snow, but brass must be put into the fire. A tender sprig is easily nipped, but a stiff oak must be hacked and hewed before it falls. A stout spirit brings much sorrow upon it. It is a grievous temper. If it is not bowed to God, it grows worse and worse. And if it is bowed or bowed, it is often with great violence. In natural causes, resistance increases vigor and operation of contraries. When fire and water meet in strong opposition, how does the strong rage until it has gotten the victory? If a man enlists against a stout and a strong antagonist, he calls up all his spirits and power that he may get the conquest. If a king sends to deal with rebels with which neither pro offers, patience, counsels, nor favors can prevail, he arms himself against them. God will overcome if fair means do not work. Then he awakens himself as a lion and comes as a man of war and lets fly his arrows into the soul. Job 6 verse 4. God tried Ephraim in many ways, but his heart yielded not. At last, when warning pieces did not bring him, God mounted his cannons against him and gave him a broadside. For the iniquity of his covetousness, I was wroth. Isaiah 57 verses 16 through 17. And then he struck sail and yielded. Jeremiah 31, verse 19. Number six. Rigidness and unmercifulness to the spiritual state of others. The saints are sometimes much lacking in bowels of pity and tenderness and apt to break the bruised reed by censures, neglects, contempts, and rough dealing. 
and it is hard to pity much until they have felt much. For this cause, Christ was a man of sorrows, that we might be assured of his compassions. In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Hebrews 2, verses 17 through 18. God chose broken vessels to pour comfort into, that it may diffuse itself upon others. Let me read that again for the Arminian listener here. God chose broken vessels to pour comfort into, that it may diffuse itself upon others. Whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 6. Sense of the pains of a wounded spirit make the heart tender, and God loves such a spirit. He abhors pride, insolence, and unmercifulness in all, but most especially in his children. It is very natural for fellow members to be uncompassionate one to another. The relation requires love, and love calls for mercy. Christ is full of meekness and will not quench the smoking flax nor break the bruised reed. Isaiah 42, verse 3. He that abounds in mercy loves mercy. What if thy brother is low in gifts and graces, yet know not that you are the be- or know not that the beauty of Christ's body is made up as of the symmetry and congruity, so of the inequality of members? And the least infant in grace is as the apple of his eye. Take heed of destroying by your uncharitable carriage the temple of Christ, or causing those to grieve whom he would not have grieved. Is it for you, whom he has spared, to deal so with your fellow servant? Your hard dealing is the way to bring you into prison and lay you in chains. And I'll take a moment to say this could probably mean this thing going on between Calvinists and Arminians. I believe that the Lord that he's uh, giving Simmons the something to give to us in later times, because we do kind of you know tear each other up and down, and we all both profess Christianity. And I'm not talking about the God, the ungodly. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about those that are condemned. I'm talking about Christians. Okay, all that I just read, you can you can give that to Christians. Okay, this is what he's talking about. Okay, let me continue. What if he is poor and mean, yet look not over him with disdain? Have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? James 2, verse 1. In this you are corrupt judges, judges of evil thoughts, verse 4. These are chosen of God, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, verse 5. If you despise the poor, it will occasion men to blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called, verse 7. The law says, if thou love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well, verse 8. You must be judged by this law, and he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Verse 13. What if your brother has many failings, or has offended? Remember the rule. Brothers, if a man be overtaken with a fault, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2. Edom's sin was great because he added affliction to Jacob's troubles. 
Thou shouldst not have spoken proudly in the day of distress. As thou hast done, it shall be done to thee. Thy reward shall return upon your own head. Obadiah verses 12 and 15. Number 7. Some Great Transgression There are daily infirmities which have a pardon in their course. But though God is merciful to the weakness of his servants, yet if they sin willingly and put out the light of counsel, he will put out the light of comfort. If they break the bonds of his government, he will cast them into bonds of distress. David is a visible and known pattern in this case. Sometimes the saints take heed and run like the wild ass in the desert till her month comes in which she is travail and sorrow, and sometimes they wound the honor of the gospel, and so bring a wound upon themselves that the sword is sheathed in their souls, and sometimes they run to their old ways, and so renew their old fears. Breeding new troubles, sometimes they lie long unhumbled until God awakens them with rods and raises them by kindling a fire underneath them. <laughs> Rebellion brings many loads. Disobedience and impenitence, or impenitence are springs of bitterness. A fire comes out of this bramble to burn the cedar of Lebanon. Fifth cause. To show that he is the God of all comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 4. He keeps the cistern empty so that we may look to the clouds above for the pleasant fruit of peace that has her roots in heaven. Our own hearts, though they may be planted with pleasant trees, yet of themselves bring forth nothing but briars. And God loves to show himself the Lord of these treasures of comfort in such a way that the heart may have no dependence but upon him and that it may always fear, because he can soon turn the clearest day into the darkest night. Comfort is not given us in absolute possession, but we are always tenants at will. If God wills it, he can in a moment lay our hopes and joys in the dust, and strip us of all our garments of joy, and turn us into mourning. Okay, notice I said this here, we're tenants at will. This is God's will, not ours. Okay? Because it goes on to say, if God wills it, he can in a moment lay our hopes and joys in the dust, strip us of all our garments of joy, and turn us into mourning. And as light in the air, or as water not the spring, but in the vessel, so it may soon be cut off. God needs not go far to seek a rod to whip us with. If he does but withdraw his comforting spirit, our spirit will soon prove an afflicting spirit. The peace of the soul is by virtue of the power and presence of God. But if he departs, all is in an uproar. Our own thoughts will be as scourges. The Roman emperors kept lions to destroy the Christians, and our hearts are gates and dens of lions, if God lets them loose. Oh, the rendings that are by them. If God keeps not garrison, the enemies will break in. All our peace is from him. The brightest star that shines most with the light of comfort, derives it from the sun of righteousness, and therefore that they may have a sight of that dark and dismal nature of their own hearts, he shuts in his light, and then, when the soul lies in a mournful and distressed case, in depths where it finds no bottom, and whence none can deliver, when a man sees all creatures standing as dead pictures, and reckons himself past all hope, 
then I say, God shows himself to be the God of comfort by commanding light to shine out of darkness and quieting the high and raging storms which did bear down all before him. The sixth cause. To revive their esteem of mercy. When a man is first brought out of Babylon, he is as those that dream. The heart is full of gladness, and the mouth is full of praise. The birds sing sweetly in the spring. When a man is newly brought out of the pit, and delivered from the sorrows of death which did encompass him, and from the pains of hell which had hold of him, while the prints of the chain are still on him, and the scars of his hurt remain, he says as David, I love the Lord, because he hath heard my voice and my supplications. I was brought low, and he helped me. Return unto thy rest, O my soul, for the Lord hath dealt bountifully with thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. Psalm 116.1 and 6-8 through 8. The soul floats in exaltation at present. But when the days of mercy continue, the remembrance of the days of sorrow wear off, and the fire of love begins to fade. Christ is not of so high an account. Though at first he was the chiefest of ten thousands, the joy of their hearts, yet now his love and kindness grow stale. Therefore God sends the soul back into her old prison to feel the weight of her former irons and chains, and causes her to put on her old cast garments of mourning, the sackcloth and ashes which she wore in the days of old. And by laying the rod upon her, as the prophet spread himself upon the dead child, so a new life may come into the dying love. He's talking about Elijah. Elijah or Elisha, one of the two. And now mercy is raised to its former price, and Christ is advanced on high again. Now the soul returns with redoubled strength, and with multiplied and increased thankfulness. The seventh cause, that others may be instructed. Sometimes God chooses the most eminent to set them out as demonstrations of this, that assurance is not essential to holiness, that their conjunction is not indissoluble. Weak ones might have thought their cause worse if they had seen much grace always attended with abundant joy. But now God shows that comforts and rejoicing are not always the portion of the saints, so that in their dark nights, when they see no light, they may live in hope that the sun will rise, though their way is a dark way, it is a sure way. The eighth cause, to fit for special service. They that go down into the depths see many wonders which others know not. Experience gives wisdom. Many are kept in a low way and have neither strong fears nor strong joys. These are not as David's worthies, but are Christians of the lower rank, common soldiers. Many are carried much aloft in great hopes and flashes of joy, but they much overlook the things below. Many infirmities and failings lie undiscovered. But when God fetches the soul down and sets it to dig beneath this, man is more enlarged in true wisdom and holiness, carrying a fuller knowledge of sin, Christ, hell, and heaven than others do. And so is made a stronger and more complete man, even as he that has been in all conditions, and has traveled through sea and land, and seen many countries, gains an excellency by his experience above others. A homebred spirit is a low spirit. God will not work, or God will not do much with many, but leaves them to this work, mainly to save their own souls. But he will use some as his agents, and factors in his great designs, and the affairs of many, and therefore trains them up to the knowledge of heights and depths. Some are 
ordinary passengers, and it is enough for them to look to themselves, being able to do but little for others. But some must be pilots, and therefore must be acquainted with winds, seas, rocks, and sands, and that they may not only save themselves, but others. Afflictions come not empty-handed, but like a dark cloud bring much after them. There are many things which a man cannot learn in books, but he must learn it in himself. A scholar may read and acquaint himself with the art of navigation, but that will not make him a good mariner, nor will the study of war make a soldier, but experience makes both. And I'm going to take another moment here to interject that this does not mean to, to try to do this without the Bible. Don't sit there and go, okay, well, Joseph Simon says that I can do this without the Bible and I can be like a Quaker and have it all spiritual and stuff. No, he's not saying that, so don't take it that way. God does all, as in great freedom, so in great wisdom. And having appointed men to several ends, he leads them in several ends and works them in several molds. Out of the same lump, he makes some different from others in form, quantity, and excellency. Some metal, which is for highest use, he casts often into the fire. God may call you to suffer much for him, and desertions are great preparations, partly because they give much experience of the vanity of all creatures. He has shown you, learn how, they, learn how little they avail in the day of wrath, so that you may see you part not with such great matters if you part with the world. God has shown you that life is not in them, and that you may live without them. Desertions are great preparations, partly also because, having felt great evils, you are more encouraged to endure lesser afflictions. You will not fear to fight with a stripling after you have encountered a Goliath. Moreover, in the greatest depths, have you not seen how all your fears have vanished and all your sorrows passed away by the light of God's countenance shining forth upon you? And so you see that the joy of the Lord is strong, it is a sign of much love and that you are highly set by with God when he thus leads you in several states. For this is to lead you by the hand to see that all may be seen. And if he did not much, or if he did not intend much good, he would not bestow so much work upon you. You stand in the greatest conformity to Christ when, through many tribulations and afflictions, you enter into glory. God keeps you from becoming tarnished by constant rubbing and uses the fan so much to blow away the chaff. He keeps you awake by these stirrings. Some troubles ennoble the spirit from a state which would degenerate into effeminacy by constant peace. Winds fan the air and purge it, and the running and restless waters are most clear. This may suffice to have pointed out some causes of God's cutting off the comforts of the saints. Having hitherto treated of the case of the afflicted soul, I now come to the cure. I shall not need to enlarge myself much here, having been somewhat copious in the lure of the first kind of or in the cure of the first kind of desertions. There are two sorts of men that walk much without the consolations. In the first sort, the cause is natural, and in the second, spiritual. As for the first, who are oppressed with melancholy, that dark and dusky humor which disturbs both body and soul. Their cure belongs rather to the physician than to the pastor, and Galen is more proper for them than a minister of the gospel. It is a pestilent humor when it abounds. One called it the devil's bath. 
These men cannot walk clearly, but as a light in a dark lantern flames dimly, so is the soul in such a body. The distemper of the body causes distemper of, distemper of soul, for the soul follows its temper. This disease works strange passions, strange imaginations, and heavy conclusions. It is not possible for such a man to be quiet until he is cured. This man rages more than the seas when the winds blow. He may sometimes be elevated, as it were, into the third heaven, but shortly thereafter he will be brought, as it were, into the lowest hell. I leave such with this advice, that when they find their temper to be naturally or accidentally melancholic, to use all such ways as God has prepared in a natural way. For as the soul is not cured by natural causes, so the body is not cured by spiritual remedies. But I shall direct myself to those whose heaviness of spirit is from spiritual causes. There are persons of two sorts, sleeping and awakened. First, there are some slumbering and drowsy spirits who have fallen from their former comforts, and they know about it. They make up that lack by taking delight in creature comforts, living in the meantime without God. As it was in the former kind of desertion, so it is in this case. God is departed, and either men know it or not, or they don't mind at all, but bear their doleful loss with a stupid and sinful patience, or rather with a stupid dullness. Now, if you find yourself in such a case, consider what a contempt of God it is to be willing to live without him and to pour out your heart upon the creature. If you do not repent, you must look for a bitter scourge, or worse, that God will leave you to walk on to your grave in such a dull and low way. It is a woeful change to descend from communion with God and Christ to these poor things below. And how little do you esteem the precious promises and favor of the great and eternal God, the blood, love, and presence of Jesus Christ, if you can be content to live in such a state. Look upon others, how their souls have melted when God has been estranged from them. Where is your love, faith, fear, hope, or life that you can endure to be so? If these were not all asleep, you would take up a cry for your former happiness and sit down and weep over your present misery. Is the loss of a friend on earth so grievous, and yet a friend in heaven of no more account? You live in a spiritual adultery because your husband is neglected while other things are entertained. Awaken yourselves and seek to regain your former peace and joy in God. Secondly, some are awakened and see their loss and are affected by it. This sort, though they have more sorrow, yet are in a better way than the former. I will to, or I will to both these propound some persuasives and directives. For persuasion, consider that, number one, comfort is your strength. The more a man sees and feels the love of God, the more the heart is established. There are three great assaults and trials that a man is exposed to. Letter A, temptations to sin. He that will walk, will walk in the way of God, or he that will walk in the way of God shall not always sail in a calm. The great Leviathan will show himself, he whose victories have been many, even among the highest saints. Now if your hearts are filled with comfort, you have strength greater than the world. For the manifestation of divine love is the incendiary of love, which is stronger than death. So long as love to Christ is kept up, the heart is safe. Love is a strong garrison and makes the soul impregnable. Again, love does not mean tolerance. 
it does not mean tolerance. So don't don't read this as such, man. It's not <laughs> love is not tolerance. God never gives his love at the expense of his righteousness. And if you haven't figured that out by listening to this whole book, then you're never going to get it. So, but anyway, let me continue. And while you keep a fresh and clear sight of the love of God in Christ, it feeds love and keeps it up in strength. Add to this that a comfortable enjoyment of God carries the heart aloft. It makes the conversation to be in heaven. And while a man's way is above, he is safe from the snares below. The heart is in danger of being ensnared when it wanders to creature comforts, even as the fowl is in danger when she is upon the earth, but is safe when she is mounted upon the wing. Letter B. Inward Accusations The world may accuse, but that is not so shaking as when Satan casts and objections. He is a subtle sophist and comes often with snarling and cunning disputes, and unless you are well settled, he will drive you from your ground. Unless God clears the state of your soul and gives evidence of your graces, you will not be able to hold up against them. I speak this to those who live with low comforts and content or content themselves with dark evidences. Though you may hold out until you are set upon, yet when that comes, you will find yourself weak. Letter C. Outward Straits What if a day of trouble comes? You may see changes. You have no sure hold of anything under the sun, and what shall support you in such a time? What a heavy thing it will be when you find trouble in the world and no peace in heaven. Spiritual comfort would make you undaunted and strong. Who should care where he goes if he sees that Jesus Christ is with him? You have heard of the patience of the martyrs and of their stoutness. Such was their courage that it could neither be corrupted nor daunted. Water could not quench it. Famine could not starve it, fire could not burn it, and wild beasts could not devour it. And what was it that gave them this strength? But the sight of him that is invisible, and the sense of his favor and presence. A sense of glory did rest upon them. The apostle acknowledges the force of peace towards God and comfortable access to him. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God of all comfort but we glory in tribulation also. Romans 5, verses 2 and 3. This was that which made him say, For which cause we faint not, but we, though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. He is well fenced that is surrounded by salvation, and that has Christ with him. He reckons not much of the world when he is sure of heaven. Therefore, strive to get an abundance of comfort. Labor to recover your loss. You will have need of it all. What will you do when you come to die? How sad will death be when you do not know where you are going afterward? But death is but a shadow to him that meets it with assurance of life. Number two, your sadness does hurt to yourselves, wasting your strength and to others by discouraging them. Number three, your recovery is possible. You may attain to your former comforts. The same way is open still. There is the same mercy in God, the same mediator, and the same promises. You are not now a further distance from peace with God than you were in former times. Are you not now as incapable as you were then when God found you in your blood in enmity against him, in darkness, in bondage unto every lust, and altogether without him? 
Did God appear to you when you sought him not? And will he not be found when you inquire after him? Is not his promise to revive the spirit of the contrite? Isaiah 57, verse 15. Others have recovered. David was in these depths, yet he was restored. This testimony is given by God that he is the God that comforteth those that are cast down. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 6. Therefore, live in hope. He hides his face that you may seek after him. He goes from you that you may seek after him. And the promise is that they shall seek, or they that shall seek shall find. He will open to them that knock. Matthew 7, verse 7. You have a right to peace and comfort, for it is that which Christ died for, and which he has left as a legacy to his people. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. John 14, verse 27. Sit not therefore under discouragements. Say not, there is no hope. Take heed of having hard thoughts of the God who is the Father of mercies, but encourage yourselves in your God. Weeping and mourning are good fruits of love, yet you must not stay here, but reach after that which is before you, and this shall suffice by way of persuasion. Now to direction, let me propound a few counsels. Number one, seek the Father through the Son. Perhaps you have not held up Christ in your heart, and for your strangeness to the Son, the Father has estranged himself. Go and carry Christ in your arms, for he is dear unto God, and the Father has determined to pour out all his love through the Son. Christ is set before you. Stir up yourselves to take hold of him. If you will come through him, you have the Father's heart. You make your case to be Christ's case when you come to him in this way, and Christ cannot be denied. Christ cannot be denied. The Father's mercies melt at the Son's mediation. You may pray, weep, and lift up your voice on high, but unless you come in Christ, it will profit not. A man comes to Christ when he thankfully accepts the offer of Christ and devolves his cares upon him, desiring in his heart that Christ would undertake for him, and believing that he shall be accepted. If any one of these is lacking, you come not in Christ." You must entertain the offer of Christ, counting him worthy of all acceptance. You must cast yourselves upon Christ, or he will not undertake for you. Holy dependence engages him and makes him your friend. Finally, you must believe that you shall find God a friend, for unless you believe this promise, Christ will not move for you. And when you have come to him in this way, he will not fail you. The Son will hold fast to you. Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out, John verse six or John chapter six verse thirty seven. This is a precious word. Christ will not shut the door upon you when you come. When you cast yourselves into his arms, he will not, no, he will not cast you out. You have a sure hold. When you fall into his arms, you fall into his heart, and being in his heart you can be sure that if he has any power with the Father, he will work for your peace. Why do you afflict yourselves? If you believe, you shall be established. Christ will carry you unto the Father and will draw out his kindness towards you. And know that if the Father loves the Son, he will show favor to his friends. And who can express the love which Christ has for a mourning soul that flies to him for refuge? 
His love was such that he died for you, and will he not speak a good word for you? You sit pouring and searching for pillars of hope within you, and bestow much pains to answer your own fears. But the ready way to make the business clear is by going to Christ. Stand not so much upon this query, whether you have believed in truth or not, but put out all doubt by a present faith. The door is open. Enter and live. You may more easily build a new house and fabric of comfort by taking Christ than repair your old dwelling and clear all the suits that are brought against your tenure. Here, Christ calls you. Come on to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Matthew 11, verse 28. And, ho, everyone that thirsteth, come. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Let him that is a thirst come, and whoever or whosoever will, let him take the waters of life freely. Revelation 22, verse 17. And now will you go not? Oh, that you would go. How soon would your mourning be turned into joy and your sadness into gladness? How would those everlasting arms of mercy embrace you? And you should have future happiness in a kind of presence. Number two, seek peace much. Be not weary, but strengthen yourselves in the promise. Let this pillar hold up your trembling hands, for he that shall come will come, and he will not tarry. Hebrews 10 verse 37. Behold, he comes, and his reward is with him. Oh, methinks I see the fountain opening itself to the thirsty. I see the clouds dissolving. Prepare your vessels. Stay a while, for I hear the sound of many waters. You are at the right door. Knock and knock hard, for the Lord is there, and there dwells everlasting mercy. Hark how the saints sing for joy. Look in and see paradise and rivers of joy feeding them. How did they come to get in but by lying at the gate? Hold on, for in due time you shall reap if you faint not. Galatians 6 verse 9. My friends, these are not dreams, but they are real truths which Jehovah will make good to them that believe. Perhaps you come, but you come not in faith, and you stay not with patience. Consult with reason and the scriptures. Is there a way to God or not? If yea, which is that way? If God tells you this is the way, then walk in it. Wait in it. And though you have lost your comfortable enjoyment of Christ, yet I say to you as the angels to them, this same Jesus which is taken from you shall so come as you have seen him go. Acts 1 verse 11. Therefore keep your eyes upward. Pray much and the heavens will open. When you believe and pray, you have the key of heaven in your hand. Those everlasting doors will open to you. Therefore, hold up yourselves in seeking. You may meet with fire, a tempest, or storms, but stay, and the still small voice will come. Number three, come with much love for God. Come as a friend, then come, welcome. Many desire ease and desire to be delivered from wrath and hell. But come in love. Desire God to be your friend and be willing to be his friend. Let love show itself in two things. Letter A. Lament your sin. That has caused a strangeness between God and you. Come weeping for sin and humbled for your unkindness, and all is forgiven. You think too meanly of God when you think he has much ado to pardon you. He is ready to forgive, and he overflows in pardoning mercy. 
He expects your acknowledgement and repentance. And then you are friends. Letter B. Come with new and strong engagements of heart. Bring yourselves as an offering to him and sacrifice yourselves upon that golden altar, Jesus Christ. Say, Lord, if you will love me, I will love you. Be mine and I am yours and will be yours. Thus two old friends shall renew their friendship and they that were at a distance shall meet in love. He that did depart shall return with kindness and he that was forsaken shall be received with mercy. And the former joy which was in heaven at his first conversion shall be renewed at his restoration. Now, clap your hands, you heavens and earth, for the son who was lost is found. And he that was dead is alive. The exile is received, and a covenant of peace is renewed between a man of sorrows and the God of peace, through the Prince of Peace, to whom be praise forever.